Oh. What time is it? Who woke me up? Hello, everyone. I am your host, Fast Big Dog, and I'm very excited to announce that I have a very special guest on today's show, Mr. Zach Caldwell, the owner, CEO of Caldwell Sport. This current series of podcasts is centered around getting started, and Zach is one of the most respected voices in the U.S. on skis, grinds, wax, overall ski tech. So today we're going to be discussing how to get started building the optimal ski fleet, complete with grinds. This episode also marks a very special milestone in that Zach will be our first guest to making not one, not two, but three appearances on this show. As this episode is going to be specifically devoted to skis and grinds, and then we're going to have a follow-up episode very soon, probably a week or so, with Mr. Caldwell that will be focused on everyone's favorite topic, waxing. In fact, it's such an important topic that we wanted to give it its own show. And then in yet another Nordic Insights first, we're going to be collecting questions from you, the devoted listener. And we're going to have Zach back on in a couple of weeks after we've had time to feel a whole bunch of your questions to go over all the topics that you guys have sent in that you want to hear covered. So this is a um, kind of exciting because everyone loves talking skis, everyone loves talking wax, and everyone loves getting questions answered from experts. So we're excited and very, very appreciative of Mr. Caldwell to come on the show and give us so much of his time. So welcome to the show, Zach. Thanks, John. Good, Good to, to see you. you as well. So I think a sizable percentage of my listeners already know who you are, but for the few that don't, and to get everyone not only up to speed, but also on the same page, Please give us a little background on you and is the tradition finished with an FBD fun fact, something that most people probably don't know about you and would be surprised to hear. A background on me. I, um, I've had two jobs in my <laughs> life. I worked in building, building trades and I worked in on skis. Um, as not exactly true. When um, New England Nordic Ski Association first formed up back in, uh, when was it? 90s still. Uh, the regional governing committee of the United States Ski Association kind of split off and formed a regional governing body in New England with my old Uncle John, who's now 95 years old, uh, leading the charge, and a bunch of others as well. And I got hired as the, um, the interim manager and then the first program director for the regional governing body. So my my beginnings of working in the sport were more sport governance, and I got to work with a lot of really good athletes um, and develop some good relationships. It was a great cohort of athletes coming up through New England at the time, led by guys like Chris Freeman, Andrew Johnson, uh, Justin Freeman, um, a bunch of those folks and did a bunch of testing camps and things like that developed some really good relationships that turned into some coaching relationships. So I got to coach some high level athletes like Chris and Noah Hoffman and Tad Elliott, all of that kind of grew out of my early work with NENSA. But in 2001, 2002, I left after six years with NENSA to start up a grinding business and put a stone grinder in a truck bought a stone grinder from Lars Fenson who brought it to the 2002 Olympics in, in Utah uh, to provide service for Sweden and 
Germany in both cross country and biathlon. And he left the machine with me. I put it in a truck and I traveled around for a while and then uh, actually moved it into the shop and because grinding out of a truck is backbreaking and um, have been doing that since 2002. So it's interesting you mentioned uh, John because I know I know you pretty well and you're a pretty modest guy, but you come from a, a very distinguished ski family with all kinds of accomplishments. So can you give us just a real brief rundown about the Caldwell family tree and its many interconnections and accomplishments in skiing? Because it's quite extensive. So, yeah, the Caldwell family tree is a little simpler than it feels from my side because I'm a distinct side <laughs> branch. My, my father was 13 years younger than my uncle, Uncle John who was the oldest of four. My father was the youngest. Um, and they, yeah, because of the age difference, they lived pretty different lives. John had four kids. His daughter, Jennifer, died some years ago of cancer. Um, those four kids were all really involved in skiing. John, John, Johnny himself was a Olympian in 1952 um, in Nordic Combined in the Oslo Olympics. Uh, he did a bunch of coaching. Um, yeah, his history is a matter of public record. You can look it up. He's been around. He's written books. His kids, uh, Tim, Sferi, Peter, Jennifer, all were heavily involved in skiing. And that's where it gets a little interconnected. Uh, Tim was a four-time Olympian. Tim's son, Patty, was an Olympian uh, more recently, obviously. Uh, Sferi has been... Uh, affiliated with Stratton Mountain School for many years, was the coach and then the headmaster and then the coach and then the organizer of the SMS uh, T2 program and is still involved with that program, although he started to hand the reins over quite a lot. Sferi's daughter, Sophie, was on the national team for a long time. That's Patty's cousin. She married Simi Hamilton, who's now Simi Caldwell. Um, That's a joke, actually. It's the other way around. I think she's actually Sophie Hamilton. Uh, But um, Sferi's younger kids are both coaches, Isabel out in California and Austin at University of Colorado. Austin married into a steamboat family, right. as you're probably oh, yeah. aware. Uh, so, you know, those connections run pretty deep. And also then, a ski um, family, by the way. So. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and the very coolest cousins of all are, uh, are the ones least involved with skiing. Anya is Jennifer's daughter. She skied for UNH and, and is just general hell on wheels. She's around and often seen it at races and was a hell of a good skier, but probably made, made less of a life in it than the others. And then Peter's kids are the, are the rest of the whole group of cousins that, um, they're the most interesting ones of all. They're, they're super cool. Uh, Alexa and um, and Tyler and Cinda twins. Um, so it's it's a really cool family, a, a great generation of Johnny and Hepper's grandchildren, who are my removed cousins, first cousins once removed, because okay. I'm first cousins with Tim and Sferi and that yep. whole crew. So the my I think probably biggest takeaway from that whole thing is, uh, as is often the case. Uh, the, the coolest people are the ones least involved in skiing. There's always a really high inverse Absol- correlation. There. Absolutely. There's the, 
the one thing I can say is that um, Nordic skiers are a great group of people to interact with on a daily basis. They're all good mm. folks. They are not cool. <laughs> there's there's really nothing cool about any of them. I think that's probably, again, an extremely accurate statement. You're, I like the way you're coming out of the gates spitting big truths because I, I think that's uh, excellent background. And it's, it's again, it's, it's a fascinating story. I saw a video about that years ago. And Gavin Kench, who is a, like a internet savant, will probably be able to find it someplace on the the labyrinth of the internet. But it, it's it's a pretty cool story just how involved your family has been over the years at such a high level and just the support and everything that you guys have done is really remarkable. Speaking of which, kind of like the last background thing, and we'll start right in. I think this is really important because you touched on it very, very briefly, but I'd like to explain how we met uh, because I think this this speaks <laughs> a lot to uh, not only your integrity, but also towards your approach about getting people on skis and getting people matched up with the right pair of skis for them, which is what we're talking about today, if we ever get through this introduction. So um, I had just started skiing, and I had this hand-me-down pair of skis that had been through like five or six owners, and I later passed them on to someone else, and I still see them out there on the trails, which makes me super happy. And my nemesis, Josh Mullen, who was living at my house at the time, told me in his weird robot Schmullen voice, FPD, if you ever want to be any good, you need to get yourself some real skis. And then, if, you know, he just walked off. So that, whatever, two days later when I tracked him down again, I'm like, well, how do I do that? And I still remember his exact quote. He's like, call Zach Caldwell. He's a ski whisperer. He'll get you on his good skis. So you were working in Boulder at the time. I called you and you said, yeah, come on down. So I did. And you, me, and Noah Hoffman, which is how I met the Hoff, we all drove up to Eldora and you had a bag of probably 10 to 12 pairs of skis. And you and I went through and tested every single one of those pairs of skis. And I mean, Zach, I'll never forget it. You treated me like a World Cup skier, even though I'd probably been on snow, shit, maybe five times. And that meant a lot to me. It really did. And I'll never forget this level of effort. It's how I got on Rozzy. Um, I, I like the feel of the skis right away. And you're like, yep, this is, these are great skis for you. These are good big guy skis. You know, these are going to work well for you. And, you know, I didn't feel like you had any other agenda other than wanting to get me on great skis. And so I never forgot that. And I think kind of in the context of this discussion, that just shows how seriously you take matching up people with skis. And like I said, you know, I think that's a huge compliment to you and everything you've done. It's, it's probably why we've been friends for so many years, because I'll never forget that. So let's dive right in, because without a doubt, one of the most asked questions in all of skiing, which is in itself kind of fascinating, because this level is pervasive from, you know, parents uh, down in, you know, the sports club here in Steamboat who have their five-year-olds getting on skis for the first time ever, all the way up to, you know, when I'm hanging out in the World Cup in the wax cabin, the question you hear all the time, young, old, master, elite, everyone in between, how fast they are regardless is how many pairs of skis should I have? So um, let's let's dive right in. Um, I think we can break this down a bunch of different ways. And you and I have talked about this a couple of times. So I, I think what's going to resonate the most and make the most sense for the listeners is I'd love to hear your re recommendation on optimal quiver size, uh, composition. So, you know, how many pairs of skis, uh, associated grinds on those skis. And then uh, break that down for the following categories. So we'll go with U14, high school, college slash pre-elite, 
elite, recreational master, serious master, whatever that means, and then the purely recreational skier. So um, I'll we, I'll walk you through uh, all of these uh, kind of one at a time, and and I'm just going to throw my caveat in because this this is the extent of my contribution to the discussion. Is I'm going to add to this the caveat. Uh, I also administer a group here in Steamboat about trail conditions, getting people you know just in one spot. And just today I posted a report that I'm like, hey, skiing pretty nice. I'd probably stay on the rock skis though. So I think I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this as well, but. I think sometimes this gets sort of lost in the shuffle, the importance of a good pair of rock skis for both skate and classic, because, you know, you do all this work, you've got great race skis. Last thing you want to do, you get all, and this happens all the time. Everyone's fired up to get out there. You know, you're training all summer, got big ambitions, big goals, or you're just stoked to be back on snow. You go up there and, you know, no matter where you are for us, us, it's up on Buff Pass, but there's lots of other places everywhere in the country. Everyone's got their designated early ski venue and more often than not you get there and things get a little dinged up so i don't think you can underestimate the importance of a good pair of rock skis so having said that mr caldwell i'm going to turn the floor over to you and again some of the categories i think u14 might be a pretty quick discussion but in particular since you know we got nationals going on right now i think a lot of people are going to be interested to hear your recommendations for all the other categories so let's start with u14s what's the ideal quiver for, you know, at this point, like they started when they're, I don't know, six, seven, eight, nine, whatever you know, point they got in. They're at the point where they're driving the races, you know, they're, they're bought in, you know, they're, uh, they're decent kids. They're, they're liking it. They're having fun. You know, the parents are invested in, you know, the club and all that stuff. What, what, what should they have in the bag, Zach? Oh, they should have a dedicated pair of skate skis and a dedicated pair of waxable classic skis. Um, and I'm, I'm less hung up on the rock ski thing than you are. Skis are made to be used. Use them up. Wear them out. We can sell you new ones. In fact, I really need to. Uh, but the, the, fundamentally, what I don't like is to see kids training on crappy equipment because they're afraid to screw up their good equipment. And believe me, I'm from the east. We get a lot of truly rock conditions. And there's a difference between rock skis that you know you're going to ski on rocks and skis that you are – uh, going to take out when conditions might not be totally perfect, but, you know, because you don't want to screw up your race skis, but they're kind of crap. I would so much rather in marginal conditions where you can avoid most of the hazards, take the risk of a few small scratches to be skiing on good material. Those are your tools. You need to know how to use them. And particularly at a young age, what I see over and over again is that the development of young kids and we're talking as young as, you know, seven, eight years old, right up through that U14 age category is really dependent on good material. We see it not just in the aptitude or the capability of kind of moving on skis, like learning to skate, keeping up with the group, being part of a being part of a peer group that's banging around the trails and hitting the corners right. hard and terrorizing the old folks like <laughs> FBD. You know, that's 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 an important thing. And, and if you don't have the equipment to be part of that group, you're not part of the group. And I've seen it over and over again that a little bit of investment in some quality material at a young age pays off. But you don't need a fleet. You need a pair of skate skis and a pair of classic skis. Well, this is, again, we're, we're two minutes into the meat of the discussion. And you've already dropped some, I think, very valuable wisdom and got a cheap shot in. So you're, you're two for two. You're, you're, you're loving life here already. Um, so let, My cheap shots are lined up by the side here. I I'm going to get are. a lot of them. Um, we'll, we'll just see how it goes. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's talk about that a little bit more in all seriousness, because I do think that is something that there is 
I don't want to say misunderstanding surrounding, and I get it. You know, I mean, I I, I originally had this written out as um, race skis, training skis. So how I roll, I have the beater rock skis when I know it's just going to be complete crap and you're going to be hitting something. Now, I'm fortunate sure. enough to be, you know, yep. now I'm at the point I'm sponsored by Rosinol and they're great people and they send me skis. So I feel a little funny rec- making recommendations as a guy who gets skis for free. But having said that, I, you know, I love my skis and I take good care of them. And like you said, you need to learn your tools. So I'll have race skis that I really will pamper. I agree with you. I want to get on race skis. I go out and train on them when the conditions are good. I also have the luxury of having training skis. But but you're of the opinion if as long as it's not total crap, you're you're comfortable with the kids going out there and banging on their race skis. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Scratches don't slow skis down that much. And grinding should be done on a regular basis to keep the skis up to speed anyway, just to refresh the bases. You don't need to be cosmetically perfect, um, but, you know, skis are made to be used. Look, we're all facing shorter winters with less snow. Everywhere in the country is suffering for snow right now. And I think it's going to become a reality that uh, for everyone, not just us Easterners who have been doing it for a long time, that, you know, skis have a lifespan and they're made to be used. And they also tend to get better and better. This year's skis are better than the ones being made three or four years ago. So if you've lovingly saved those skis from three or four years ago, you skied on them in 12 races but never trained on them, they're still just as slow as all the other skis from three or four years ago, even if they're in impeccable shape. And you probably need new skis if you want to be at the front of the pack anyway. It's an ongoing investment. We can't pretend you're buying skis for life. So I'm going to throw out another great Zach Caldwell quote, which is, you know, my style. It's more of a backhanded compliment. When you when you said, uh, skis and children are way more durable than people ever realize. So there's a nice compliment for you and all the angry parents can, uh, I'll, I'll send out your email at the, end of the, at the end of this podcast and they can call you about that. So, um, all right, uh, this is, Let's. This is this is good because we want to sort of concurrently talk about grinds as well. So let's um, let's talk about that since you already mentioned it. Uh, talk about. Let's just say you're within that category. So we're, we're uh, U14s. You've got a good pair of uh, classic race. Uh, uh, yeah, skate race, skate rock, classic race, classic rock. Um, you know, whatever you're, you're 12, you got a couple more years. How often, uh, do you want, do you recommend that, uh, those athletes grind those skis? So we see in general skis that are heavily used, raced on a lot, tend to have a little better than a full season of good performance on the base with, you know, regular care and updates. Um, people who are really taking care of the skis, racing on them infrequently because they have a big fleet and they're spreading the load out, obviously can get more than a season. Uh, we very regularly see skis tail off in their performance during a second season after grinding. To make sure that you're getting the best out of them and to extend the life of the ski, grinding annually is a simple program that just ensures that you're exposing fresh base material and getting the best of the, the material on an, you know, an annual basis. It's, uh, definitely makes less work for us. We have to remove less material when we're grinding. And by us, I mean, it doesn't need to be me. It's any, any grinder is going to tell you the same thing that, uh, a ski that's less seen, less abuse is going to be quicker to grind. You take less material away, you resurface it quickly and you end up with a lot more ski left over than something where you got to climb into half the base and 
remove the groove in order to find sure, good material. Sure. All right. So um, you you think a yearly grind is a good idea for someone who's moderately serious? You for you for absolutely. And the 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 the, sure. the compl- yeah. I mean, U fourteen. It's it, at U14 you're pretty serious if you're getting your skis ground at all, if, you know, yeah. aftermarket, right? So, so let's just face it. You're, you're talking to me. I run a <laughs> grinder. So, you know, I carry a big hammer and I'm looking for no, nails. I, I, I got gotcha. you. Every, everyone needs well, their skis ground. No, but, but fundamentally most U14 kids don't grind their skis at all, nor do they care. Right. It's fine. You know, the, the numbers involved in skiing at that point are hopefully really, really big. A lot of them, uh, you know, a lot of them don't have a future in the sport. They're doing it as after school care or family, whatever. It's great. It's awesome. But it's, um, you know, the, the kids who have really latched on to racing at that point, I would say that U14 age category is where it really does start to become appropriate to think of the skis as tools. Right. And that's, that's why I broke it down that way. Cause that's been my experience coaching as well. That's, the, that's sort of the inflection point where people start to figure out, Hey, you know, the kid's pretty good at this. They're starting to get into it. And plus, when you think about it, if you're talking about a hundred dollar investment that is going to help, you know, contribute to a successful year, I mean, shit, that's one night in a condo at JN's. So, and, and let's, it's also it's also the age range where kids almost always hit that inflection point between junior skis and adult mm-hmm. skis. So so when we look at junior skis, a lot of companies make really good junior skis, but they're not as good as their adult skis. The junior skis are often less dynamic. They're cheaper materials um, and the cambers aren't as refined and they tend to be made in ways that try to optimize and broaden the weight range that's applicable. Uh, a lot of the cambers are sort of set sure, up that sure. way. Um, so. At about 100 pounds, it becomes pretty compelling to start looking at, at adult material for the simple reason that uh, kids at that size, if they're moving well and on dynamic skis, the strength and elasticity built into top-level adult race skis is sufficient to provide a real benefit. So those kids, those U14s who are serious – maybe they're 80 pounds and I'm going to talk to them and just be like, yeah, you're fine on junior skis and we can grind them if you want, but you're a freaking water bug. It almost doesn't right. matter at your mass. Like there's, there's just not that much more to be get gotten out of it. You know, little light kids, they almost don't need a second camber and a classic ski, a, a wax pocket. They can just, you know, shush the wax along <laughs> the snow and like <laughs> little kids, you just, you just whack, put a bunch right. of wax on the snow right. and they're fine and get the right. wax right, you know? Uh, but you reach that, inflection point where you want a wax pocket on the classic skis and you want some elastic uh dynamic response in the skate skis and you want to be you want the technique to be evolving around those characteristics as well and at about the time that the investment goes from you know three to four hundred dollars for a junior ski to six to eight hundred dollars for an adult ski that's when we tend to piggyback the grinding okay well this is great like i said you know that's that. That's the hard conversation where you look the parent in the eye and you're like, "I'm going to give you some discounts for your junior, but you're going to need them because the sport just is about to get very much right. more expensive." I hope you brought your credit. But again, card. that that's yeah. also a very relative statement. I'm gonna I'm gonna harken back to another discussion that you and I had back in the day, and we were you know uh, making making comparisons. Let's not say making fun, but making comparisons between. Uh, Nordic skiers and road triathletes. And we've all had the experience. I used to rent at a shop back in college and guys would show up 
you know, mid pack at best, looking to improve the average bike speed from 15 to 16 miles an hour with three sets of aero wheels, wondering which, which one they should put on. So it is funny when you see Nordic skiers yeah. going, ah, I wonder if I should buy another pair of $800 skis after four years of use. And, you know, your contemporary, for lack of a better word, has four sets of $3,000 wheels sitting in the garage. So everything is yeah. relative. And you're in Colorado. I'm I'm here in the east where the Yankees are. You know, the, we, you've got you got people, you know, driving eighty thousand dollar cars who are on twelve year old skis and think there's no reason yeah. to upgrade and that it's outrageous that they cost yeah. so much. Yeah, freaking yeah. Yankees. All right, so let's let's uh, <laughs> jump category two, high school. Um, you know, uh, topic near and dear my heart with the Winter Sports Club. Um, bunch of other teams, you know, that I've had a chance to work with or train with a little bit. You know, these kids are fast. Holy shit, are they fast. It's incredibly impressive how fast they're all going. Um, you're right there as well. In the, I saw you post something, some uh, one of the kids you work with now look goddamn fast, uh, out striding. Uh, what do you recommend for that fleet? What, are the, what do they need? And let's don't forget to throw in the grind. And I know that's a tricky question, but give us talk uh, fleet and talk grind. High school. Okay. So we gotta we gotta pause a second here. I need to I need to ask you how much time I can take with this and I can try to consolidate it, but we need to ask as soon as we start talking about more than one pair of skis for a discipline, skate skis, more than one pair of skate skis, for example, we absolutely must address the question of quality versus quantity and why you're trying to acquire more skis. Um and to do that, a lot of what we need to try to address is like, what are we, what are we even looking for in a difference? What's the benefit? What's the potential benefit to having two pairs of skis? Well, one benefit is that if you're a growing young athlete, the heavier your ski bag is, the more strength training you get <laughs> as you haul it around yeah. to races. But that's a pretty incidental benefit, and it's not actually going to make you any faster. We really need to try to identify what kind of performance benefit is going to be available with multiple pairs of skis. And you got to hold that up against what that means on the results sheet in order to make an informed decision. Most high school athletes are going to be fine on a single pair of skating classic, but they're not qualifying for junior nationals. Yep. You know, pretty much every region in the country, the kids who are going to junior national championships are on multi-pair fleets. And that doesn't, it's not because they're on multi-pair fleets that they're going. It's because their investment in the sport, their training over 12 months, their investment in a program and their peers and their investment in equipment has all reached a level that supports them athletically and also demands equipment to be competitive in a more in – in a tightening field. Do we have time to actually explore some of the – some of the estimate – estimated differences that are available or should we just focus on on the fleet you know what i th i think we do have time because you know i don't think anyone wants to sit here for six hours but this is a topic that i hear I, oh, you know i hear it, it comes up so often in so many different contexts so uh i i think we should dive in just because you you have okay. such remarkable insight into this and again I can tell you, you know, the Winter Sports Club where I'm, I'm involved, albeit at a very low level, um, you know, those parents e either come to me or I'm, I'm present for discussions with, where they're trying to get it sorted out. And they legitimately want nothing but the best for the kids. So some of them don't have a lot of resources. They're sure. not going to buy 
five pairs of skis if they only need three, and they would rather not buy three if they only need one. But the kids are fast kids, and the parents are, you know, doing everything they can to help them achieve their goals. So if they hear from a relatively unbiased independent resource, albeit a guy who sells skis, that uh, there are, you know, quantifiable intrinsic differences in a three-ski fleet, I think there are a lot of parents that are going to make that investment. So, you know, maybe that, let's not go crazy, but let, let's dive into this a little bit because I think it's valuable information that people – don't often get access to some of the resources I have, like guys like yourself and people in the World Cup who l- see fast skis every day. Okay, so we're going to try to jam through some some estimated numbers here, and we're going to try to relate them to real-world experience. And this model that we're going to create is going to actually inform us as we continue to discuss college, Perfect. elite, Perfect. and master racers Perfect. as well. So so this is background that I think as we start talking multi-pairs is going to be really useful. The first thing we got to do is start to break it down into a um, uh, an understandable granularity. We need to be talking in terms of detectable differences, right? What's what's a what's a meaningful difference? And and the base level of meaningful difference that I've come up with over many years of doing this is a difference that you can feel when you put one ski on one foot and another ski on the other foot and go out and scooch around a little bit. Whether you're talking skate or classic, it's a difference in performance, kick and glide on the classic ski or or speed stability on the skate ski. Let's just focus on the speed thing for a second. If we relate that threshold for feeling a difference, the difference that you're pretty confident you feel, tends to gravitate to something around 0.3% on a speed trap. Okay. So I send you, Shafe, you're my tester. You're going out, you're gonna test these six pairs of skis or six individual skis with different waxes on them. And you're gonna tell me what you like. And you're gonna come back and you're gonna say, hey, these two are the fastest, but I can't really tell them apart but they're pretty different from these. And I can definitely tell a difference between these. Well, where you're definitely telling a difference, you're, where your confidence emerges and says, yeah, there's a difference, that tends to be about 0.3%. And it doesn't seem to depend on how experienced you are. I'm Pretty beginner skiers can feel that just as well as- All right, I'm gonna skiers. stop, I'm gonna stop fact, you right there just for one second. Yeah. I love that comment. I absolutely love it. And, you know, I work with Evan Pengley all the time uh, at Rossi, who just got a big promotion, by the way. And he and I, because, you know, Evan was, I think, a pretty good uh, racer, but has amazing ski fill. I love testing skis with Evan. And there is this incredible miss. Alex Harvey, as a matter of fact, had a great quote. Uh, I forget where I was talking to him about this one time. He's like, the tech doesn't even let me test skis. Because he said, whatever, is on, whatever skis on my left foot always feel the fastest. So, you know, it is, it's remarkable to me that I know some phenomenal skiers who have terrible, terrible ski feel. They're great on everything else. I love the way you just broke it down because there's this immediate, there's this stereotype or bias or assumption, whatever you want to call it, that be, fast skiers have good ski feel and, and slow skiers don't. That's absolutely not no. true. So I love the fact, I just had to throw that in there because that's, that rings true with my experience as well. That's why I always, never mind. Go, go ahead. Okay. So here's what happens on the race course. You take that detectable difference between two pairs of skis. Like, yes, these are different. 0.3% in the speed trap. Well, that 0.3% actually compounds when you start skiing on it. And I don't know the magic behind this, but what I think is that you, you take your speed from one stride into the next and you initiate the next stride from a higher speed. You carry your speed across the flat. You start the uphill. Another, it's additive, sure. 
two strides later. It's, it's like carrying it, it more compounds. speed down. It yeah, it's carrying more itself. speed down the hill. It's the same same philosophy. Sure. So that zero point three percent of passive speed in the speed trap, I estimate, is roughly one percent in active speed around a loop around the course. My wife Amy tells me that that is a very poor estimate, and it's much higher than that. So I'm going to go ahead and say that I believe that one percent estimate for that in in measured speed on the clock active speed based on a detectable difference between two pairs of skis is conservative maybe it's a bigger difference than that so we're gonna we're gonna work with what i feel is really descent defensible so we got to ask ourselves what does that actually mean to a racer what does it mean to you to have a one percent difference on the clock most racers kind of look at this percent back thing because points are related to it you know and fist points in an individual start distance race there's eight points per percent so you know people kind of know but if you break it down i actually ran some numbers on this to be prepared in new england among the junior open men's field in the eastern cups there's an average of about 0.33 percent for each place in the top 20. okay so you take the field spread in the top 20 and, and they're spread out by about 0.33% on average, which indicates that if you're skiing in the top 20 in that field, that 1% difference is worth three places. Okay? In the women's so wait, field, wait, let me, let me, it's only let worth me, one. Let me stop you right there because that's an important point. I want to make sure people got yeah. this. So uh, th- they were talking about the difference between a very well-prepared uh, set of skis and an average pair of skis. Like, I'm out testing. No, 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 no. No, we're just talking about the difference. Let's say they're identical skis mm. with different wax on them, and you can okay, feel the yep. difference. John Schaefer goes out, skis them A and B, and says, yep, this one's faster. I'm proposing that that's three places in that junior open men's field in New England. Mm-hmm. If you're a junior open woman in New England, it might be one or two places. If you're a U16, it's only one or two places. Maybe in the U16 girls, only one place. But if you're a World Cup athlete, it's probably more like five places. So it's really contextual depending on who you're racing. If the sure. field depth is not that high, the difference between you know, two similar but different skis is uh, not that important. So as we move up the ranks, if we look at U14, the field spread is pretty big. So the you know the reason to have multiple pairs of skis with small differences between mm. them, probably not that high. As you move up into high school, yeah, the field depth is a little better, but yeah, still you might be gaining a place to have a dedicated warm skate ski, but maybe not two. But you work into college, now you're talking three, four places in the top twenty to have a warm pair of skate skis instead of a universal right. pair, or maybe a third pair. You know what I'm saying? As you move on to the World Cup. You can't succeed without the right skis. Well, and what's interesting about this, so, just extra- sorry to cut you off with there, but just extrapolating this out, because you mentioned the implications for other categories, uh, even a somewhat competitive master at the Berkey, when you start talking about when you're out there for two, three, four, five hours, now all of a sudden that, that 1%, you're talking about an extremely significant difference in time considerable amount of time and and in a field that dense that's huge absolutely that's that, that that's a that's a big difference yeah for sure okay now again we're talking about basically the difference that you would be confident in 
when you go out. Another topic of conversation for every single skier who's ever going to carry more than one pair of skis is how do you avoid the brain damage <laughs> of trying to choose between the skis on Absolutely. the race day? And what you have to believe in your heart is that if you can't tell the difference, it doesn't matter. Yep. Don't stress. You're looking for a detectable difference, and that detectable difference is going to yield a meaningful difference on snow. And you just have to you have to know that and get get on with your day because there's more important stuff to do than to test I, these. I, you gotta you gotta test with confidence and decision. You've got to be very very clear. I, I love that statement as well because I'm sure your experience is the same. I've seen more people, even on the World Cup level, put themselves through the emotional cheese grater as to which pair of skis they want. And, you know, standing there, it's like, if they really are that close, all you're doing is stressing yourself and screwing up your warm up and adding a level of anxiety, just grab a pair of skis and go. Um, so this is, this is awesome. So let, let's circle back to where, where we started with this. Uh, so high school, it sounds like a competitive high school kid is going to benefit from, let's just stick with skate. And we'll talk about if it, you can extrapolate directly. I know classics a little bit of a different beast. So high school kid, uh, fast kid, you know, they had the financial means, whatever that may be. Um, they can make it work. Um, what do you, what do you, what's your sort of target fleet in terms of skate and classic? Okay. There's one more thing I want to throw at okay. you here because it becomes, yep. it becomes important. And what we got to bear in mind that what we're talking about is a detectable difference in very similar skis. So it might be a difference in a wax preparation, might be the difference in grinding, might be the cambers between two different skis. But when we look at all the factors that combine to provide ski performance, we've got to consider the skis themselves. That is material, geometry, and camber. That's the, the physical object that has a material mm -hmm. makeup that determines its potential elastic response to material stiffness. It's got a geometry or a thickness profile, and it's got camber or a preload shape, you know, the, the starting shape of the ski. Then we've got bases. So you've got different base materials, different grinds, and different hand structures. And we've got wax. We've got additional material we put on to lubricate the skis. So regardless of which is the most important, you've got to keep in mind that these factors are all additive. They all combine. That detectable difference that we discussed is uh, proposed to be maybe the difference between two waxes two suitable waxes on the sure. same day. Okay. Now, when we're starting to talk about high school kids adding pairs of skis, the very first question we need to ask is, okay, so you want a second pair of skis? Let's take a look at your first pair. Because frankly, if that detectable difference between two waxes is already a place or two, um, we need to make sure that the skis that carry the wax can carry it. And we absolutely have to consider the factors that really, really matter in terms of ski performance. So this might surprise some people here because I don't think it's what everyone thinks. Um, if we go through those factors and we look at what really matters, um, material quality, speed max versus carbon light. If you spend more money on your skis, are you going to get faster skis? And the answer is not necessarily. Step down skis can be very fast. That's, that's not a disqualifier to have an RCS level ski. Mm -hmm. Plenty fast RCS skis. In fact, plenty World Cup skiers were on RCS skis until they stopped making them because they didn't have room for the old edging machine in the factory anymore. That was two years ago. 
they were still using literally RCS construction and cores for special production on the World Cup. Okay, so step down that we're not worried about the idea of fit having just the right flex for your ski. Again, this is really a heavily sold idea. This is what I do, right? This is my, well, not really. I, I like to say I don't, but but it's a very heavily marketed idea that the ski has to quote unquote right. fit. Got to have the right flex. Yeah, semi-important. It's more important in material terms than in numeric terms. Every ski can have a measured flex value. I'm not that concerned with the measured flex value. I am concerned that you're on the right size material so that the thickness profile or the material stiffness of the ski is right. Mm -hmm. Shafe, you're a big guy. If you were to propose to me that you wanted to ski on a shorter skate ski so it's more nimble, I'm going to be really concerned that the thinner material simply isn't going to put up with your mass plus your force, and therefore you have to be on the longer ski. So a lot of times I'm trying to convince people like, hey, can we not add a second pair of 181s for your 140-pound high school mm -hmm. boy and instead get, get this kid on one pair of the right size skis, the right length, so we have the right material underfoot? Then we have the camber quality. Okay, this is when we're looking at the starting shape of the ski. And if I go to a ski factory, I'm not picking different material. All the material is the same. The bases are determined by what they put on. And I'm going to grind them anyway. And what I'm actually traveling to select are specific cambers because that's that's what we're reviewing. That's the difference. That's what makes one pair of, you know, Rosinol S2s different from another pair of Rosinol S2s. It's, it's the camber. That's extremely mm -hmm. important. And that takes a little bit of expertise. This is this is my marketing pitch. This is why you should buy skis <laughs> from me because I'm very deliberate about cambers. Um, but it's true. That's That's a really big part of the whole thing. Finding good skis mm -hmm. in terms of the camber is really important. Base quality, extremely important. Okay, so the the starting point where it makes sense to invest in skis is where they put the World Cup bases on. Okay. You know, if that RCS ski still has Fisher's 28 base, then you've got a good base. You've got a raceable base. But if you step down to a material that's got a cheap base on it, um, you forget about it. It's, it's not, not a good investment, even though it's much cheaper. You, sh you should spend enough money to get good bases. Any ski shop can help you identify which skis have the top quality bases. We're talking about a higher density polyethylene and just better, better more expensive material on the base. And, and that is important. But this also becomes important when we talk about the grinding thing, grinding the skis annually at the point that you've invested in something good enough to have that base material is basically just like keeping it going. It's like changing the oil in your car, mm -hmm. you know? You, you spend all the money on the engine. Let's not right. blow it up. Finally, the grind pattern. Okay, you, you keep wanting me to talk about grind patterns, and I'm going to tell you that, yeah, it's important, but not as important as the camber and the and the base quality. There are days when it's super important, but by and large, there are a lot of good universal grinds out there, and you can you can do pretty well on a lot of them. So that it needs to be a good grind, but that's a, maybe a little less peak importance than the others. So if we go back now when we talk about that high school kid, we're at that threshold where, hey, that kid is in a competitive enough field and is athletic and good, and we want to see some results from that kid, and we're willing to spend some money. The first question is, is the quality of the starting point good enough to complement? Or do we need to back up and be like, hey, you know what? Let's not add a warm pair of skis to a really junky-looking pair of skis that he's been using for everything, just so he has Great two pairs. Point. Let's instead look at what 
your resources are, what's in the budget, and what's in the plan. And this is the final part of building a fleet. Anytime we start talking with a junior athlete, whether it's, you know, right out of U14 or a little older, um, the conversation is, what does this look like next year? What's the growth trajectory for this skier? How long is the lifespan of this size ski in the fleet for the skier? How do we expect the skier's performance on this ski to change as they continue to grow and get stronger? And how, when is this ski going to be replaced? What's it going to be replaced with? And what's, what's the plan? What's the succession plan inside the fleet? Very often, we're trying to help a junior skier arrive at age 17, 18, where they're a U18 athlete now instead of a U16 with a two to three pair solution on the skate side that has been built over a couple of years. It's not just bought off the rack for sure. two pairs. It's been built up, but with foresight and intention. That, that makes complete sense. Does that make sense? Instead of just how many pairs do you right. need? It's like, okay, let's start with quality right. first. Make sure you get something big nailed down. And then you know what the next ski is going to be. You've already planned on how that's going to be complemented. And you're going to now change the grind on the first pair to make it a little more dedicated mm-hmm. cold. And you're going to add a warm ski next year. You see uh, what I'm absolutely. Saying? So my, uh, I'm taking uh, feverish notes here. <clears throat> Sounds like the, the, one of the big takeaways is you're better off. You'd rather see a, a kid on one pair of great skis than two pairs of shit skis. Absolutely. Okay. And shit skis include your dad's old hand-me-downs from when he was yeah, a racer. When he, they were yep, awesome. Yep. So you're the kid. Even though your dad yeah, thinks that they're the right, best skis right. ever. Yeah. And, and they maybe maybe they were back in 1989 or whatever. So you've got. You, or the or the skis that you've got at the ski skate sale that like some super tour athlete sold because they sucked, <laughs> but they, you know, have some race markings on them or something. And there, I see a lot of. Really, really uh, valiant efforts to make really good use of very old repurposed race skis that should be training skis or rock skis. Oh, see, there you go. Rock skis back in the mix. I knew it. It's another point for me. Okay, so you're you're that kid. You got uh, the the one good pair of skis. Um, I love the plan. I'm sure the parents love the succession plan, building the fleet up. You know, peaking when the kid obviously is uh, getting ready, you know, kind of at that inflection point and whether or not they move on to the next level with their racing. So it sounds like the everything lined up perfectly, the maximum number of skaters that you'd expect that you think is optimal would be three. Right. And I guess that's going to be more more than that. Even even at three, you risk overloading a support Mm -hmm. staff. We got to we got to face resource limitations and think about how the skis are getting prepared, when decisions are getting made, how they're getting made, who's making them and how race day choices are going to be made. So most teams that are traveling, say you get your kids part of a high school team, if they're ironing on base layers, that's usually not happening at the race. They're not operating out of a World Cup truck. They don't even have a room. They're unloading a van and hitting the snow and maybe they're they're pulling out a bench and doing some top coats if they're super sophisticated, right? At that level, there's not that much option to test skis on the day at the venue and get it really dialed. And there's not, you know, you're not going to be chasing it that hard. So what we need is the ability to make really clear choices from a little ways out. Sure. And as we start to get really granular, let's say you, you know, that high school kid has seven pairs of skis because the parents have money to spend. (coughs) <coughs> Pardon me. 
finding the right pair and that seven pairs becomes a nightmare. Sure, sure. And in the end, those decisions become emotional decisions and get coupled with a lot of frustration. So I try to limit it, actually. And this is maybe a little counterintuitive because there, obviously there is potential in a bigger fleet of skis. But you've got to be able to realize the potential with a really high batting average and make really good decisions at a very low cost for a multiple pair fleet to make sense. So with the junior skiers that we end up working with, it's typically we're focused mostly on the idea of a universal cold and a universal warm ski. Mm -hmm. And then depending on the, the brand they're working with and the models that are available, maybe there's a special ski, maybe a zero ski, depending on where they are, maybe a clear base skate ski for really wet conditions. But, but, you know, as a third ski, cause they've got a, a universal warm ski. So it's, that also, though, is always going to depend on their ability to test and identify that material. So if they're in a program that can't support them testing, I would rather not sell them the skis. Right. Because the coaches won't think. <laughs> right, right. And the coaches drive more business than parents. Right. But it, it sounds <laughs> like for people who have been uh, keeping score at home, following along, asking good questions, or have accumulated this knowledge over time, in, you know, in a somewhat competitive program, uh, certainly – Every high school kid could benefit from a good pair of a universal warm, universal cold, both skate and classic, right? There's a benefit to having both, yeah. And so what we're talking about is a dedicated camber, mm -hmm. potentially a dedicated base material, depending on the brand, and certainly a more specific grind finish on the ski that's going to yield, I would say, um, predictably – in particularly as you move away from the mid-range conditions, the peak of the bell curve, you know, those like mid-20s universal mm -hmm. conditions, as you get quite cold or quite warm, the kids that have the cold skis and the warm skis, yeah, I mean, in a in a high school field, there might be three, four places. Okay. In the top yeah, 20. Yeah. I'm, this is incredibly helpful, and I'm sure what everyone wants to hear. Um, unless you got something else on that, let's sort of build on that and jump up to the college pre-elite you know, so maybe you're skiing super tours, you know, you're skiing, skiing the college circuit. Um, at this point, you know, at least in a perfect world, you're starting to take some ownership of your fleet. Uh, I know all the top skiing boat kids have pretty good ski feel. Um, so they certainly can be an active participant. In fact, to Josh and Brian and Norris, to their credit, they encourage them to really help develop some independent ski feel. So uh, at least in theory, they should be able to uh, play a very active role in this whole process. Do you, uh, you recommend, and you know, at this point, you're probably on a, on a ski deal too, so the economics of it become a little bit more workable. What do you start to, what do you think about in terms of optimizing the, the college pre-elite ski fleet? Well, so one major factor from my point of view that differentiates collegiate athletes from junior athletes is that the vast majority of collegiate athletes are not still on a growth trajectory. So they're not they're not going to outgrow material. Mm -hmm. um, so we can be we can have the expectation for stability for several years. Um, and then we need to look at the program they're in. If we take, say, for example, Williams College, it's a very well established program with a really good team here in the East. It's a really it's a ball buster of a school. It's very intense academics. The kids are going there because they got into Williams and they have ambition 
and uh, not necessarily for the ski team, a lot of those kids are trying to ski on high school skis because although they're working really hard and they're very good athletes, the culture and the team doesn't seem to prioritize it quite as much. Um, it's, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're focused on, on, uh, a big range of stuff at a very high level. Um, I think a lot of the Western schools, you got kids who are attending college for skiing and that happens some in the East as well, but uh, you know, a little less, maybe UVM's got some of those kids. Um, so we see really big differences between the programs. And I think there's some really big disparities in what I see watching, say, an Eastern collegiate race between the programs when we look at um, just the quality of the ski fleets mm-hmm. that are being run. Some programs emphasize it a lot more. Others don't. But um, you you might be surprised by how much really bad material there is being raced in collegiate racing. Um, it's typically not showing up, wake up at the top of the results list, but, uh, but it's out there. So what's the right thing in college and what's the wrong thing? Well, I'm not going to argue with those kids who don't want to spend their parents' money on another pair of skis. Cause like it's their last year and they know they're done. They're senior. They've raced three years on this pair of skis. They know it's not optimal, but they're done. It's like six weekends and they're out. Does it, should they be spending that money? I mean, by and large, for the most part, every master's racer, every junior, every U16, U14, we're always talking about the expectation that they're going to be in the sport for a while. College is the one place where we see a lot of people end their ski career for the time right. being. Yeah, They're done. That's... Unless they're unless they're moving on to, to, to pro racing. And those kids pretty pretty quickly self-identify. So you were talking about uh, athletes who are, you know, on a deal. Well, almost all college kids have access to some discounting or some level of direct sales, but, um, but not all of them are getting skis that cheap. There's still a, a, a lot of money involved and, and the, there's a, there's a big variety a much bigger variety in college than you're going to find, say on the JOT. Mm-hmm. For a, for a given region, um, Eastern Eastern Collegiate Circuit, you see you see pretty wild differences in, in skis. So, do you want to talk about what's what what they should be doing? Yeah. And and I, I guess what I'm going to ask you is: Are these collegiate skiers who are going to go, uh, you know, join a uh, BSF Pro Team or uh, a Crashbury Green Team or something after college, or are these college skiers who are going to be done when yeah, they're that, done. That's a great question. That's a great distinction as well. And thanks for bringing that. Yeah, sort of, I think, the in, in, uh, intrinsic in my question is the assumption that these are kids with aspirations to a higher level. You know, maybe they're they're just going to make the super tour. Um, you know, maybe they, you know, Sylvan Elvison is a perfect example. You know, good college kid, but he he and I were talking one time and he's like, I would never even thought about the national team my first couple of years of school. But, you know, he kind of got there. A lot of kids, like, you know, for the for the high-end kids, that's kind of an easy question. You know, the Luke Yeager guys are going to, you know, they've been identified as top talent. Ogden's another one. You know, those guys, that's a, that's a little bit of a different situation because they're already going, you know, a lot of those guys have World Cup starts already. So I guess I'm sort of, I was framing the question around like the talent college kid who 
thinks maybe they'll give it a go for a year or two. You know, the Maddie Briggs is, you, you know, the, you know, the kid that I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah. Get a, okay. get a good school yep, for sure. Or so, a good enough school where they're, you know, they're getting some recognition and, you know, they're sitting around having a few beers with the boys going, ah, you know, maybe I can go somewhere with this. Okay. So uh, now we got to look at the collegiate racing and how it works, because once again, we got to face resource limitation. If we're going to answer that question correctly, resource limitation primarily boils down to personnel. At this point, you have a pretty contained field, but each school is going to be able to start six athletes in a carnival, mm-hmm. right? Um, and in some open carnivals, it can be considerably more. Typically, there are two coaches and maybe an assistant coach. If we look at a World Cup where each nation is starting, you know, where the U.S. has five or six athletes, you've got a, a, a fully staffed truck with uh, each tech maybe responsible for one or two athletes on the day, pre-screening skis, as well as the ball-breaking work of testing all the underlayers, top coats, hand structures, everything yep, else. I'm with you. But at very least, they're they're able to, to take, you know, three, four, five, eight pairs out of this out of the truck, pre-screen them before testing with the athlete to reduce it down to a couple candidates before a final test to select a race key. That's a heavily assisted process. College coaches cannot do that for 12 starters on a day. Totally impossible. Completely implausible, in fact, that they're even going to race morning, test paraffins, and put race paraffin on enough skis for athletes to test. Those decisions need to be made quite a lot earlier. So as we start talking about multiple pair fleets for college skiers, we're going to hearken back to the point that you made as you're introducing this age category, which is the, the skill of the athlete in being an asset to this process at this point in time. Because as these skiers develop, we're talking about skiers with a potential future in the sport. We're talking about young adults who have reached physical maturity, and they're having to be personally accountable for a lot of their own success on the service side of things because of a limitation of resources. They don't have World Cup staff support. So once again, a World Cup fleet maybe would be awesome. Can they make sense of five or six pairs? Some of them can. Some of them have the skill to do that. Uh, I've, you know, I've been doing some testing with this young guy, Luke Rizzio, who's going to go to UVM. Super talented uh, junior skier from uh, Wilmington, not too far from here. It goes to Mount Anthony Union High School. Is that the kid School. you, po- you posted, at US you posted right him now. striding out on uh, roller skis? No, that was probably David. Oh, that's right. That's what Northcott. it was. Scott. That kid um, looked good. No, but Luke, Luke, Luke for example, he, Luke's not a kid I coach. He's just a kid that I'm collaborating with on some ski stuff, and he's testing some different brands. He chose not to pursue a brand relationship this year, and he's looking at, at any, everything. He just wants to learn about the skis. Very, very skilled and discerning tester. So one day up at Craftsbury early season, I, sp- I spread literally like 12 pairs of skis from three different brands out for him to just cruise around on and test. It wasn't a race day for him. He hadn't gotten his entry in time, <laughs> so, he, so he, he, he wasn't in the sprint. But he, but he was out there uh, able to test a bunch of skis, and, and as he's testing skis, I'm testing him. Because if I'm going to help him try to make decisions, build a bag for each weekend over the course of a season, decide what skis to take out to U.S. Nationals, part of what I've got to do is – is uh is choke down the 
the, the fuel supply there if he can't yeah, swallow. You, you want to see you where know? he is. He can't. He can't. Yeah. Well, you got to got to got to check his ability to screen the skis and quickly yeah, make sure. decisions. And this is a kid who's, you know, he's committed to UVM and, and he's a kid who could carry six pairs of skate skis to any college carnival. He will already have them zeroed with appropriate wax. He'll have them scraped, brushed, ready to go. And the first thing that's going to happen is he's going to, you know, screen those skis, make a decision and, hand, you know, he'll be on time with a decision without breaking, breaking his brain over it. And, um, yeah, he's, he's really facile through that whole process unassisted doesn't doesn't need mm-hmm. holding. that's relatively rare there are plenty of other kids that just need to have the one pair solution by the time they get to the race and those kids don't have a lot of reason to carry more than two mm-hmm. like honestly you college kid you probably need more than one to be competitive but maybe two's enough if you're not going to take ownership of the process of zeroing them out getting them ready to go, screening them on the snow, communicating your needs to the coaches along with the skis in a timely fashion so that they can be prepped for the race. It really depends on the athlete at that point in time. And it's a really fascinating and very fun part of working with those athletes to try to help develop those skills and the understanding of what they're looking for. Ski testing is interesting. Most skiers have the instinct to test for passive speed, you know, slipperiness, Mm -hmm. the, 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 the low speed, you know, slippery feeling, but the kids that end up being really good assets to themselves are very good at gauging active speed, speed that, you know, the speed in their center of mass at race. Mm-hmm. Speed. They get, the, get the skis up to speed and figure out what they move fast on. And that's, that's a really big skill. And it's a fun thing to help people develop. And that, that you know, older junior, you know, you, you 20, you 18 to a degree and you 20 athletes and collegiate athletes, are at a point in their career where as the more they develop those skills, if they've got a future in the sport, the more of an asset they're going to be to themselves, their team, and their waxers. Waxing at a World Cup level is 100% a collaboration. It just is. The athlete has a big part in the success of that whole thing. And athletes with good testing skill who can communicate really well are super important. And programs and systems that facilitate that communication take negative feedback as constructive and are able to make changes quickly and arrive at a solution um, really become very, very valuable assets in uh, high level. This seems like a perfect segue to the next category of the elite skier. And, you know, at first blush, listener might be thinking, all right, you know, is there a elite skier out there that you know needs your advice as to how many pairs of skis they would have and to that i would say yes there are definitely elite skiers who you know I, i'm sort of in the luxurious position like if, if i get stuck i can call norris or you and be like dude what the hell's going on these skis feel weird and you know you call me an idiot and then it turns out i'm right and, you know and i hold that over your head for the rest of your life but i don't have a problem calling saying you know hey i don't understand this i don't I can't necessarily feel a difference. I don't, I don't really know which one to try. What do you think type thing? And I think you start to lose that sort of that intellectual flexibility when there's the expectation that you're an expert and going back to back to what we talked about earlier. There are a lot of people that may have the motor, they've got the skills, they've got the head for it. Um, They just may not have great ski feel. So I think that there are probably some elite skiers out there listening to the podcast going, I wonder how many pairs Zach thinks I should have. But here's the other part about 
uh, why I think this is a valuable question. I, I'm really interested to hear your answer. I think the average high school, college, and master skier because there's would like to hear this answer because there's an enormous amount of kind of mystique around you know the Johannes Klebo or the the Petter Nortug 50 ski fleet like oh my god if i had that what would that be that's a low yeah, number right well you know the, the, just just like i said kind of like that black box mystique like if i had that my world would change so you don't have to you know you don't have to go crazy about this so let's, give, give, give me no 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 let's, let's let, let yeah. me give you a, let me give you a specific example from the last time i was in the us team wax truck which was noah's last season working right. in the truck which was noah's last season and i i um jason cork who is jesse diggins uh, coach and service tech. Who um, had a bunch of Jessie's? She's a she's one of the girls oh, on the team. One of the women. Okay. I'm sorry, on the U.S. team. She's pretty. She's she's uh, she's showing, showing some promise. I think she could be pretty good. <laughs> I hope that pans out. <laughs> yeah, Jason. Jason had about six pairs of skis on the wall rack behind mm-hmm. his bench that he was prepping, and there were. The, you know, the ski storage in there is in this big container that hangs off the back of the truck. And there were like a couple, a couple rows dedicated to Jesse. There are a lot of skis in that truck for Jesse. So I, you know, I looked at the skis and I looked at the skis on the rack and I asked Jason, I was like, so, so how does it break out here? And he goes, you see these skis? Yeah. These six pairs are what she raises <laughs> on. Everything else, everything else. We're just looking for, for something to put in this right. pile. Those might not have been his exact words, but the, the fundamentally what it boils down to is that the top athletes aren't racing on 70 pairs of skis. Mm-hmm. They're racing on four, five, six, maybe. It's a small number. It's skis that they know. This comes back to knowing your tools. There's skis that they know. There's skis they know aren't going to fall off the cliff if the conditions right. change. Skiing does not happen in a laboratory. You can't do a test ahead of the race for the conditions during the race. It's always changing. Right. So you got to trust the material. You got to not just do the work, but you got to be able to trust the material. That means you have to have done the work during changing conditions in the past. You have to have lived through the ups and downs of the material and know what to expect from it. And you got to have the confidence of saying, "Oh, I know this ski can hang in in the wet. As this moisture comes up, this thing is going to be yeah. awesome." Because you've been out there on it. Yeah. Okay. So most of those really, really high numbers are are there to try to displace proven winners. Right. But they're not getting pulled out like minutes before a race. Like, aha, I have just the solution. It's pair 682, which we haven't raced on in three years. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> total sideline. Can I tell a funny story? Uh, one of Noah's very best world championship races, uh, world, like international races at all, was 2013 world champs. And I was helping him test skis in Val de Fiume. And it was a super goofy day for the 15K skate race. It was kind of plastic snow. Plastic deformation is when the snow is compa- snowball snow, yep. right? So it was one of those days where the the it was a wet mix of old and new. And the middle of the track was like a hump of glazed crap. And the outsides were like broken slush, mm-hmm. um, really squirrely, hard to stand on. And we had all the skis out. It was an afternoon start, so there's just way too much time. We just use all the time you've right, got, right? right? So we're we're testing all these skis, and um, we we literally put every ski on the snow that we had, and um, we had kind of boiled it down to 
one of the warmest skis with the warmest grind and one of the coldest skis with the coldest grind and neither of them really felt good <laughs> but like it was like well we have to make some decisions and this is what we've got and finally i was just like i don't know this feels wrong and this was uh, Matsus had gone to uh to the red line construction mm. they had changed construction and the skis had been awesome they had been like working really well for him he had had some great results on them and um but it just wasn't happening like we weren't getting this this feeling that that we had a solution we were looking for that detectable difference and it wasn't showing up yep. everything felt the same and i finally I, I i went back to the van and found the old pair of skis that he had used in the 2011 world champs um in oslo in the 50k that was really good but it was the old construction and we had just sort of given up on it and i uh randy gibbs was working in the wax room and i i said randy can you just scrape one of these and throw it out to us and he came out you know, two minutes later and slid it across the snow and I put it on my foot with just one of them. And immediately it was like, Oh, <laughs> that's obvious. I just started laughing and Noah got on it and he started laughing. He had the best race of his year. And it was, it was funny. It was one of those days when like, if you found that it was make or break, right. like Legkoff was 30th. Yeah. You know, and you know, there was just, there, there were people who were regular top 10 skiers in the forties yeah. and uh, just cause they didn't yeah. find it. And, um, that was the one time when it was like, yeah, we're going to the container. We're going, we're going back to the van. There was no truck at that point in time, but we literally were scraping the bottom and looking for the last pair of skis that, you know, was on its way out. Or maybe it might as well have been a new pair that had never been tested, but it was just so obvious once we found it, that doesn't happen. That's not normal. That's not how it goes, right? That's not the way it works. Is like we test all these skis and we find them. What happens is that you know the skis that work and you trust them and you go back to them over and over again and you give new material a chance to beat that stuff out. Right, right. All right, let's let's jump to a uh, topic near and dear to my heart. These are my people, Zach. You know them, you love them. The Master Blaster, they're out there. They'll drive you crazy, but at the same time, they're uh like i said they're my people they've got hearts of gold you know they got to the sport late they've been hanging around for a while what you know whatever situation they're in or we're in i should say so we've got uh two categories here the recreational master so that you know they're racing they're out there they're getting after it maybe they do a couple of races a year you know maybe they peak for the berkey or they're stoked for the berkey or you know everyone's got their own kind of mix of things there but you know this is one of a hundred things that they've got going on in their life. And then there's the super blaster. You know, this is the person that they're on a program, you know, they're, uh, they're training 12 months a year, you know, or close to it. They, you know, they, they have goals, you know, they, they get up there, they're out, you know, they're banging out laps uh, at worth at night with the headlamp, you know, they're into it. And, you know, I'm one of those people. So I don't mean this in a disparaging, a little self-deprecating perhaps, but, you know, um, for each of those categories, and quite frankly, it's probably the bulk of your customers or at least a significant percentage. What are you recommending yep. for fleets, for the, the recreational racer, and then the, uh, you know, the person who's more into it. Okay. So let's, th- this is going to kind of boil down in a slightly different way from how you've laid, uh, laid it out. Let's differentiate them, not as recreational and super blaster, but really more in terms of their willingness and aptitude to pursue the equipment side. That's fair. Yeah. I mean, deliberate. You know, fundamentally, we're saying right. the same. Okay. We're saying so, the same so, thing. So they're, they're, there are some there are some people that aren't necessarily super focused on racing, but they they want really good equipment 
and they're yeah. analytic and they're willing to I, test it and they update frequently. And I, so, some of the people that buy the most skis aren't racing at all. Oh, wow. They're, they're not racers. Really? They're, they're recreational oh, okay. skiers buying top level race wow. gear because they want a great experience skiing. And those people often have the best feedback huh. for me. I mean, they're, they're, they're okay. really good. Um, on the other hand, some of the the master blasters, they're really like the super intense. The guys on, you know, their their like their wrist devices are sending data live to Strava and training peaks at the same time. And like, hey, 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 my my wrist device is... did that this morning. Tread lightly, there, buddy. <laughs> All right. <laughs> no, you know, who uh, I'm yes, talking I about. do. They're people who are guys who are really, really serious. I about see racing. one in the mirror every morning. He's um, a great dude, too, by the way. These these are often the skiers that are least equipped to make clean choices because they overcomplicate things and they they achieve paralysis by trying to make decisions. And these are the people who we need to really try to boil down and simplify the decision making process. So a lot of the a lot of what I do when I'm working with masters athletes, because masters athletes are almost uniquely self-supported. At no other category in here are we talking about someone who doesn't have a coach helping that's, them out. That's why we right? broke it. Like a, a yep. service tech of yep. some That's kind, why I broke right? it out the way so, I did. So yep. we're talking about self-supported athletes. The The starting point question is, how are you going to approach this? What can you bite off on race day? What does your race day look like? How, how, like? how early do you need to like wake up and get breakfast to be at the start? In order to like, what, what does race morning look like? How, when are you going to make the decision? between these pairs of skis is this a purely hypothetical are you are, are you going to call me to ask which pair of skis to race on because if that's what it's going to be then then we're going to design a very simple robust program with really clear choices if you're looking for advantages you're accountable for testing and finding those advantages and i can only give you tools mm-hmm. a lot of times a lot of times a cold ski can win on a warm day unexpectedly but you, you don't find that unless you test it, mm-hmm. right? And I'm not going to recommend it to you from 1,500 miles away over the phone. You got to be there to test it, right, to, to, to find the right answer. Um, so this really boils down to personalities and a willingness to take on ski screening and testing, to plan your opportunities to get the skis on the snow in representative conditions at the venue Prior to making a final decision, doing your final prep and having everything ready to go. It's a difficult thing, but by and large, because you don't have the ability to test waxes, to test endless quantities of skis, to test grinds, to test hand structures, you need simple and robust solutions that work really well. In that system, there's a lot of room for athletes who say have as many as four or five pairs of skis that they know, that they trust, that they've set up in temperature ranges, and they've pre-waxed in those temperature ranges. So say it's say it's the Berkey, and they've got, you know, they've got a really cold pair of skis, they've got a normal cold pair of skis, and they've got a sort of a uni cold bordering on warm. And they're they're at the Berkey Biner, and they know it's going to be minus twelve overnight zero degrees at start time, but the snowpack's not hyper-refrigerated because it hasn't been that way for a month. And by late morning, it's going to be 22 Fahrenheit, and they're in 
wave one. So the whole elite wave will have churned things up ahead of them. And they're making the decision between really good first half skis and really good second half skis. But, but they understand the decision. They understand their skis. They've got appropriate wax for the grind and the camber on each pair. And they're making an informed decision based on stuff that's been set up categorically according to mm-hmm. a plan. In that case, that's a great asset for that skier to have if, if they're equipped to make that decision. Another skier with the same three pairs of skis that doesn't have the confidence, maybe has two warm pairs as well, is going to show up on Thursday, put all five pairs on the snow in non-representative conditions, try to figure out what's happening, not know, panic, <laughs> not have them waxed for the conditions right. intended, and end up at the last minute grabbing the cold pair that was waxed medium because they just weren't thinking clearly because they were so stressed and it's going to be a disaster. Mm-hmm. Well, so this is uh, this is what I both simultaneously uh, <laughs> love and hate about talking with you because I always get uh, unexpected answers and that is usually good, although often not. So let's build on this because I think in reality – you know, I, obviously, we're trying to simplify this and put people in one of two buckets. And, you know, as someone who's out there a lot, you know, I've been to, I can't even tell you how many Masters Worlds and all, all, over, all over the world in biathlon, cross country, and everything else. Um, I think there's sort of a continuum in there. And we've talked about getting to know your fleet and the importance of that. May, maybe the correct way of approaching this, because what my hope here is that People can listen to this podcast and walk away and be like, you know what? I need to buy another pair of skis or I don't. I have two. I have enough. It's been a while since I've upgraded, you know, and I don't feel like we've done that quite yet. And not that to say this information hasn't been useful. I think it has. And we're sort of building a foundation. So let, let's build on this a little bit. So if what's the process that you recommend? So let's just say you're focused on the Berkey, you know, you're. You've got life happening around you. You know, you know, you're an attorney, you're a carpenter, you're a veterinarian, you're doing what you're doing, you're working full time, you've got a family, you got kids, but you're finding the time. You know, no one has as much time as they want, but you're getting out there. You're making the commitment, uh, you know, physically, you're, you know, you're following up, you've got a training group or you're out there on your own, but you have some structured training. You're, you know, you're, you're checking the big boxes, you know, you aren't all night drinking, you know, you're, you're doing, you're, you're on top of your nutrition, you're, you're. You're where you need to be for most of this stuff. Tell me the plan that you think, and it can be a multi-year plan. How do you optimize, what's this, 2024? Let's just say I want to be a, you know, I want to move up two waves in the Berkey in the next two years. Tell, tell me how I build the fleet, how I okay. build the knowledge. Where do I need to, what, what are the tools that I need to take me to those goals? From a ski perspective. So first we need to, yeah, so here's here's the process. We start with an evaluation. We start with a starting point. We look at what you've got and how you're working. Mm-hmm. So this is a conversation and hopefully a conversation. It, it's really nice when it can be in person, but often it involves shipping skis. I line them up on the wall. I review them. I look at the cameras and I look at, at the notes. And, and if the notes aren't in front of me typed out, then we get on the phone and we have a discussion and we, we compare notes. And this often it's a little bit of a party trick because I'll be like, oh, well, this pair, you know, got a lot of positive camber in the four body. So there's tension under under load, which you know, is typically going to run better in uh, 
older snow, more transformed snow that can't absorb energy, I would think it would be a little frustrating if it's, you know, fresh, fall, and cold. But, um, and they'll go like, oh, yeah, totally. That totally happened. And I'm like, well, <laughs> that's, that's expected. <laughs> that's why I said it. <laughs> no, it's it's amazing how much you can see in the cambers and in the skis and um, it's not infallible. I'm wrong often enough to remind myself that I don't know everything. You're right. You know, but I look at a lot of skis and, and they're pretty readable. You can usually figure out what someone's experience is going to be. And once you've done that, someone usually is going to hear it when you're like, Hey, look, this pair here, I don't think it's worth grinding. I don't, I don't believe in, unless you tell me if I'm wrong but I don't think this thing's ever going to blow your socks off and there's nothing I can do using your money to turn it into something better. So let's move it along. Let's set it aside. Call it a training Rock ski, skis, baby. Sell it at the, you know, to Rock skis back, back whatever, back whatever. but let's, let's set it yep. aside. So the first, the first thing is we want to, we want to look at quality first. It's just like that high school equation. Can we establish starting point of quality? And that begins with a master skier very often with confidence. If someone comes to me with a six year old pairs of skis and says, this thing wins, Every test, and I, I, you know, I'm always the fastest guy around on this ski. I'm not going to screw with that. I don't want any part of that situation. But I'm also going to say, hey, we should regrind it, make sure the base is good because that doesn't slow skis right. down. You know, that's it's not superstition that made this fast. It's the material. Right. It's good. So I'll believe you. This is a good pair of skis. Now let's compliment it. Or if someone's like, yeah, I don't know, they're they're fine, then you know, I might say, hey, let's just start from scratch. A lot of times people come to me with a chaotic blend of different skis from different brands with totally different concepts and profiles, and they they want to specialize all this stuff, but it's 10 years mm -hmm. old, and it's just like, it's a little bit of a come to Jesus. You know, now now we got to talk about, you know, why, why do you want to spend $600 grinding skis that are still going to be 10-year-old race skis that weren't very good when they were made? They weren't even great... You know, 10 like years ago for sure can we just right. put all of these aside and do one pair of new skis that's going to really set you up well the other thing i often see is people that like ah, i just want a great pair of skis and i'm like okay great what brand are you interested in what kind of skis do you like oh i don't know you tell me <laughs> I'm like well, well i mean this is very very frequently different brands have a really different feel this relates you know when we first right. got together you told that yeah, story right. in the introduction about laying out a bunch of skis and figuring out like what material speaks to you i have plenty of people this happens multiple times a year where someone will buy you know uh, a fisher ski and a matsu ski and and grind them exactly the same and it's just a starting point like this is step one in building a fleet is to you know, figure, figure out what kind of skier you are, what, what material should you be on? What makes you happy? Mm -hmm. And then from there we can branch out. Um, so that, that's, that's, you know, establishing a starting point, make sure that it's quality. And then we're talking about how you are going to support yourself in the process of decision-making as we add additional skis. At that point, I'm going to say the high limit for a master skier in a skate fleet it's probably yeah, it's in the five or six neighborhood pairs. Yep. I think uh, uh, someone who has built that built that fleet deliberately, started with quality, added quality, assured quality, can build to that realm. But I'll tell you straight up, my actual goal in that case is to be on a cycle where a ski has a two to three year lifespan in the fleet and then is getting replaced by new material. Mm -hmm. 
Because if I look, I've got a nose for it. If you show up and I'm like, oh, I'm going to get your money every year for the next 10 years. I would much rather not sell you five pairs this year and never see you again. I would much rather sell you two pairs this year and then a pair every year. And we're going to talk about like, oh, hey, Fisher's got this new helium ski. Not totally proven, but we should put one on the snow. All right. It's about 20% adoption rate on the World Cup, but it's accelerating, and they're they're behind it. This is is the future with Fisher. I can't promise you that the early adopter experience is great, but you have a great pair of skis. Let's see if we can beat it with the latest, greatest, mm-hmm. a lighter ski. We're putting that on the snow, and we're going to put it right up against your three-year-old established favorite and hope, hope it can beat it out. And now you're working on that World Cup model where you have proven winners – and then you have the new stuff that you're trying to beat it out with. And that's when your investment is keeping you at the front instead of just making the bag heavier. Yep. Oh, I, I'm, I'm loving all of this. So let, let me try and give some executive summaries here because, you know, I'm, I'm a corporate guy and that, that's how we roll. And I think a lot of people like that. So it sounds like the first and single most important takeaway across the board, I have this in my notes for every single category, is one good pair of skis is always going to trump uh, multiple shitty pairs of skis. Hundred percent. And if you have, you know, just like bikes and so many other things, well, the incremental growth has been small over, you know, that incremental growth. It's like everything else. You know, you're, I had a rowing coach who always talk about training was every day you're putting grains of sand on a pile. Doesn't look like that much. Do that for a couple of years. All of a sudden, you got a big pile of sand. So, well, the incremental change in skis from year to year, sometimes there's a new whatever, and you know, uh, that can be a, a bigger leap. A lot of times the changes might be small, but, you know, a couple of years of small changes can make a big difference. So, even if you had a good pair of skis, to your point about like your dad's World Cup winning skis in the 80s, those are probably still not good skis now. Do you agree with that? There was a great production <laughs> of Fisher skis in 2010, week 12, 2010. Those yellow ones? 192. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic skis. Sylvan had a bunch of those, a couple pairs, yeah. I think, that he raced on a lot. And uh, they're really good. Those things were still winning tests eight years later. That's a total exception to the basic rule, which is four or five years old, the new skis are detectably better. So now we're back to that detectable difference. Right. That's 1% moving. You know, like detectably better is significantly better and it's real it's a it's it's an amount of time that can be measured it's not it's not imaginary the skis are getting better all the time second takeaway i have down here is know your fleet so if it's one pair two pairs you're better off with two or three pairs that you know really well and you know when they run than with five or six pairs that you don't really understand the differences between do you agree with that absolutely Yeah, 100%. Okay. And then the next level beyond that is to some degree, it starts to boil down to how much time you're willing to invest on the tech side. So again, you've got that pie chart. You can only slice the pie so many ways. If your time and energy, if you have to decide between training and time at the wax bench, or you've got a long, you know, you live someplace where it's a long drive to the venue. You can't get there two hours early in the morning because you're rolling in from Southern Vermont, driving up to central Maine. Um, you're better. A simpler solution is oftentimes better than a more complicated one. Yeah. But let me add a note to that because I think you're exactly right. Um, 
that time limitation is a massive one. And for busy adults with jobs, it's a really, really massive mm-hmm. one. Um, but we got to break it down into two things. One is time limitation on race day or at the race venue. So maybe you can arrive the day before, but you're still very limited on time in terms of your ability to test at the mm-hmm. race. But that ability can can be largely not large not not totally replaced, but but massively augmented with background testing. Did you know on the World Cup there's a pretty strict limitation on the number of on-course accreditations that they can have? You can only have so many service right. techs per team. So Norway has this limitless budget, you know, massive, massive budget for service. But they can't they can't put more people on the course because of regulations. What they can do is run a massive background testing project where they they pick up skis from manufacturers. And they run them through the grinder, and without even waxing them, they'll run them through a speed trap and just try to isolate good mm-hmm. skis. I mean, I have arguments with that methodology anyway, but but it's you know an example of where resources can be reallocated. There's resource limitation at the venue, so they have all this availability, and they can place it elsewhere and make sure that the skis that get to the venue are mm-hmm. better. So what what does that mean to a master skier who's you know? Man, you can either work on skis or you can work on training. Well, in point of fact, you can do both. What if a master yeah. skier were to take two pairs out every time they That's go skiing no. and just make every every single session a small test? It doesn't have to determine anything, but it's going to accumulate as knowledge, like those grains of sand. Your knowledge of the skis, your understanding of the differences between them is going to build contextually over time with repetition. And if you're doing that every time you ski, swapping your skis during your session and skiing multiple pairs, um, it almost doesn't matter the testing methodology. You will develop a sensitivity to the different skis. You'll develop preferences. You'll un- develop understanding. And you're still training. So it's not, it's not an either so, or. It's a question of having the mental bandwidth to be able to do it's, both. It's a great point. And I'm, I'm smiling here because uh, David Norris was living in my house last year. And uh, Norris told me the exact same thing. He's like, dude, you got a great fleet. He helped me with some testing. You you helped me with my fleet a couple of years ago, which was awesome. So, you know, I've had a lot of Newell's help me out a bunch too. So I've had a lot of good skiers help me out. And Norris said this exact same thing that you did. He's like, dude, you should be, and I think he got this from Flora. And he's like, you should be ski testing every day. So literally, um, I'd say once it was, you know, we had a, a a better snow year last year. So this year has been a little trickier. But once the conditions were established last year, I was essentially uh, swapping out a couple times. It's, you know, if you're doing some big three-hour loop, you can't stop halfway through or whatever. You sure. know? But yeah. every time it was prudent, which was almost every session, I did exactly that. And it's, it's great advice, Zach, as usual, because it makes a huge – and the other thing that's nice too is – when you're doing that, you're learning in a pressure-free situation. You're not constrained like, by your start time. You know, if you want to go back to the car, it's like, well, this is a little bit of a pain in the ass. But you know what? I kind of want to see how those other, you know, the first skis feel again. I can ski for 15 more minutes. Like, that, that, that's not a big deal, you know? So, you don't have any of those other intrinsic pressures. I got to find fast skis. I got to – you can just – your mind is a lot more free and I think more able to absorb nuances because you're not worried about – you know, am I going to miss my start? 
So speaking of racing at a high level, um, unless you have anything else to add, I, I want to uh, you're a, a Trevor uh, a trove of knowledge and resources. And you, you mentioned that story. I got to bring up because um, I don't want to keep you too much longer here. I, and, and we've got all next week to talk as well. But uh, you were teching for me at Masters World Champs in Klosters, Switzerland. God, six or seven years ago, I think. And um, it was a pretty like you had, you know, like a pretty tight group of like athletes you had handpicked and I for the life of me I can't remember the guy's name and I apologize for that but I was coming into the uh into the wax truck to get my skis wait how did this yeah so I was coming in and he had just finished and he was an older guy and I I don't know exactly I I think he had been on a bunch of national teams or Olympic you know he he was one of those guys he'd been around for a long time let's put it that way and he came storming in and he was fired up and so he hopefully this is ringing a bell you know what I'm talking about Okay, oh, absolutely. All right. So uh, I'm not going to do the story justice. So I, I'm just going to I'm going to turn it over to you, and I want I want you to take it from here because honestly, as much funny, crazy stuff as I've seen, this is one of my all time favorite ski stories. So go ahead. Well, I, I might need need you to deliver the punchline because okay. you you I think you remember it well, and you've told me this story a couple times over the years because it really stuck in your craw. I just know it as Bob Gray. This is Bob Gray you're talking okay. about. Okay, now we, I got to give you a little background on BG. He's one of the big three. When when American skiing first really started to blossom in the really late 60s, early 70s, it was Bob Gray, who's a farmer up in Newbury, Vermont, still oh, still of racing. Course, of course right? he is. Uh, of course he is. Yeah. Mike Gallagher, who passed a number of years ago now, um, but was a legend, longtime U.S. ski team coach, um, great storyteller, um, and another another Eastern guy. And then Mike Elliott, that's Tad and Evan's dad, and Paige's dad, and a, a total legend from Durango, and and still out there hassling everybody in in the West. Um, but these guys, these guys were really, man, they they. They started the whole story, I think, for for U.S. and right on their heels came the gener the Koki generation, Coke, Galanis, my cousin Tim, uh, Dan Simino, a whole bunch of guys in that cohort came along, and Bob specifically was uh, he grew up in Putney, right here where where I am, a couple miles from where I'm sitting right now. His father was a plant manager at the Putney School, and he. I don't know. He might have been working on the farm there, but he was he was an athlete. And um, Bill Koch was a young student there. And they uh, Bob was really a, a, a influential mentor for Bill during his development. And um, they remain great friends. They, you know, last time I talked to either one of those guys, they were still connecting to go skiing. Um, well, so Bob, <laughs> Bob is one of the most competitive Sons of bitches. He is a, a tough guy. And um, and he, he's he been racing internationally since the 60s. Okay, well, so th- this makes sense. So I'll, I'll kind of connect the story here. So this is, I think, the first time I was at uh, World Champs. And so, you know, I'm fired up. You know, I feel like I'm, I'm going pretty good. I'm looking forward to my race. It was like a 10K skate or something. It was real good for me. I'm, you know, and you, you're, you know, I got all the faith in the world in you. I've got good skis. You know, I'm, I'm pretty excited. And all of a sudden, this guy comes storming in. And I, 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 I want to say he won. I'm pretty sure that he won. He was definitely on the podium. 
and he comes storming in the wax cabin and you're like, you know, you're like, get me ready, getting someone else, you know, the, you're herding cats here. And so you kind of look over your shoulder, you know, putting top coat on me. And you're like, ah, oh, Bob, how'd it go? And he's like, I won. Oh, well, I've been racing those bastards for 50 effing years. And I'm like, this guy is the man. You can, it, so everything is so funny because we're kind of coming at, I, you know, you've known him for whatever, 30 years, 40 years. I had this 30 second snapshot of like this grizzled veteran who'd been racing like, you know, he had been through like the whole Cold War thing, <laughs> racing these doped up Russians. And it sounded like, you know, he had never quite you know, gotten the gold or he had some nemesis. He'd been racing this guy for 40 freaking years, 40 <laughs> years. And he, so yeah. I think he put his skis down and went out to get a ring of water. And you're like, you turn to me, you're like, yeah, Bob's fired up. And I was, it, it was the most <laughs> like inspirational thing ever, you know, cause people are talking about, Oh, I've been out grinding. Oh yeah. How long? Oh, I've been training for this for a couple of years. This guy had been doing it for 50 and he he's exact my recollection is exactly how you describe him. I could see him like tipping over some big you know, riding some tractor that was stuck single handedly. He was like this big, strong, like curmudgeonly Vermont guy. I've been racing those bastards for fifty years. It was great. It was one of the best stories ever. You don't have to spend a lot of time around BG to end up inspired. That guy is awesome. A uh, good friend of mine, Sean Selminski, grew up in town here and he's a doctor out in Oregon now, but he was talking to BG once, and he told me the story how uh, he was talking with Bob about training in the old days. And <clears throat> Bob's, you know, said he spent a spent a summer out in Colorado or something. And Sean's asked him how that was. He was thinking he's in college, thinking about going west for training. You know, Bob said, "Man, it was it was amazing. I I never once finished a workout wet." cold, tired, weather was always perfect. I was such a fucking pansy. I've never been so soft <laughs> in my life. <laughs> oh, I can 100% see, see him say that. I mean, honestly, Zach, I mean, you know, you, you just referenced earlier that, you know, I brought it up to you. I mean, it's been a while since we've talked about it. And that was shit 10 years ago, eight years ago, a while ago. I think about that regularly. Yeah. I mean, it was so inspiring to see this guy, you know, just – continuing and people talking about going on grinding like i said this guy's been you know racing some you know igor larian off or whatever for, for 50 freaking years and finally beat him it was it was the highlight of the trip for me really was well i think he's 80 now or maybe a little older i'm not sure exactly uh but you come out and race him at the crassberry marathon i can, I'll, I'll call him up make sure he's signed <laughs> up if you want to, uh, I'm scared he'd beat me. Take, take a swing at him, but I don't think he I know. Got a I'm scared he. Uh, oh, he would. I'm scared. Yeah. Scared he'd beat me. Um, but tell him I say hi. I'm sure he doesn't remember me. But it was like I said. It was. It was. It, it, le it left <laughs> a, a lasting impression. It really does. I mean, yeah. It's nice winning. It's nice seeing people win World Cups, and you know, we're all psyched to see JC and Ben doing well and all that. But man, I'll tell you what. Like that was. It was. It was so inspiring to see that guy I, I love that dude like i said i met him for 30 seconds let me ask you something else a couple more things real quick then i'll let you go because something else that uh really kind of in as much as it, it pains me to compliment you uh, again going back to that first trip you probably don't remember but we were driving down from uh Heldora, you know for those of you who don't know it's i don't know 45 minutes or something down a windy road uh, back to Boulder, and you and I were nerding out about physiology the whole time, and you kind of, and I, w I was pretty impressed because you started going into uh, pretty intricate mechanisms um, regarding diabetes and Chris Freeman, 
so I mean, that was right about the time Bird had been diagnosed with diabetes. And essentially, the bulk of the medical establishment was like, well, you guys are screwed. Or Chris, you're screwed. And like any other good, stubborn Nordic skier, both of you were like, the hell we are. And you essentially took it upon yourself. You and Bird sat down and figured out how to manage his diabetes. And he continued to ski at the elite level for, shit, I don't even know what, five more years? So talk a little bit about like what that whole process was like so, for athletes going through it now, because it was it was pretty remarkable what you guys were able to accomplish. The whole story is pretty remarkable. Well, you're giving me way more credit than is due. I was I was a good friend and mentor for him. We first connected when I was working for uh, New England Nordic Ski Association, running these testing camps and elite elite and development camps. And um, Chris didn't didn't have a formal coach or anything. I guess we we first really started working together when he was about 18 years old and um, developed an outline and a plan for a while. And, and it, it, it went pretty good. He uh, made the U.S. development team, moved out to Utah and was diagnosed with diabetes, I think, when he was 19 or 20 years old, living in Utah um, and that he was still in a honeymoon period in terms of his insulin sensitivity, but, but he's, you know, type one diabetic. So it was on its way out at about the time that we were talking, he was much further down the road than that. So we had already been through a whole period of, he had already been through a whole period of developing solutions for, um, for endurance racing. And one of the crazy things about diabetes and insulin sensitivity in general is that as you exercise your, your insulin sensitivity increases. So you need less supplemental insulin to process the sugar in your system. So he was training crazy volume. He would go for a hundred kilometer double poles on roller skis and he'd end up just, uh, taking no supplemental, you know, he was on such a low basal dose because his, um, training volume was so high. His long acting insulin dose was very, very low. And he was taking very few bolus doses to, to manage sugar because he was, you know, training at these, you know, these long distances. But what happens when you increase intensity and you cross that magic non-existent anaerobic threshold line is that your body dumps a ton of sugar. And any, anyone who's, who's gotten sucked into the glucose monitoring that you were asking me about a couple of years ago would be familiar with the phenomenon. But uh, really, diabetic is very attuned to it. So what happens is you move from, say, threshold level up to more maximal output, the whole equation flips on its head, and you go from needing almost no insulin to needing massive amounts of insulin very, very high amounts to mobilize the sugar that your body dumps into the blood. Otherwise, it just basically sends your lactate sky high. If blood sugar is way high, so is lactate and performance goes way, way, way down, like brutally down. On the other hand, if blood sugar goes low, you do pretty bad sort of intermediate long-term endocrine damage to your system. And so if, if there was a big sugar crash in a race, that was a season ender for Chris. And that happened at the 2010 Olympics. So what we're talking about is a time frame right around that time period of, you know, 2009, 2010, Chris was skiing very well. But one of the big changes that had happened was that he'd gotten on to an Omnipod, an insulin pump that allowed him to use fast acting insulin all the time instead of 
uh, long-acting insulin to manage his basal dose. And what that meant was that he could more accurately and quickly target the, uh, the insulin demand for his level of output. And so to the extent that I had anything to do with it, it was really just as a sounding board. Chris, Chris is the one that was living it day in and day out. I, I, you know, I supervised some workouts where he, you know, he'd start and he'd be like, well, I'm going to be going hard. If it's not hard enough, then I'm going to end up with too much insulin in my system. And if I pass out on the side of the trail, rip <laughs> the pot off, <laughs> off my arm, mm. you know, like, <laughs> um, yeah, stuff like that. It's like, uh, okay. <laughs> well, so, um, but, uh, he, has he 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 went through a lot to develop that and continues to he's racing very competitively in triathlon now and he's had to reinvent you know the, his whole insulin regime for that sport it's it's a wild thing and there's 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 really not a lot of help out there but understanding the difference between this aerobic up to threshold level uh increased sensitivity decreased demand for insulin and the the hitting the switch onto race like peak output intensities and the massively increased uh, need for insulin is is really the key to the whole so, thing. So help me out with the timeline here a little bit because I think a lot of people don't know or forgot or whatever. So Bird got fourth at Worlds twice, right? And what that was 08 and 09? Like where did the yeah. diabetes slot into his, you know, because he had some really, really good results. No, no, no. Get, help me out with this. 2000, 2003 oh, okay. uh, world champs, I think. So so 2002 Olympics, he was quite good. And this was in uh, Utah. He was very young. And then the next year in 2003, Val de Fiemme, he was fourth at world championships, very young. He was already diagnosed. He was, he was diabetic and had been diagnosed for a couple of years. Um, so it, so, you know, his entire adult life, he's, he's been type one diabetic. Uh, but yeah, 2003 was the first one. And then, uh, results fell way, way off, changed the training plan quite a lot, was working on, yeah, it's just systems that weren't working and weren't working specifically with his endocrine system, I think. And in about 2006, 2000, no, post 2006, we started working i started coaching okay. him again after since he had he when we when he joined the us ski team he was working with us ski team coaches uh went awesome for a year and then really kind of came off the rails he got an accelerated program because they were going to get medals in 2006 and it went horrendously badly and then we just sort of pieced it back together and we worked together quite closely from 2000 2000 post olympics 2006 till the end of his ski career okay and um that included a return good good return to form and uh, another fourth place at worlds in 2009 in Liebrich. Oh, so that's what i was thinking of but and that then, was the you know some good races through 2010 2011 unfortunately yep. go ahead did i lose you no so the 2010 olympics was was one where he actually had a no i'm here yep. can you hear me Hello. No, I, I got you. We, we, we had a little bit of latency. So for a second. 2010 Olympics was. Okay. Might still. No, we're good. Okay. 
or should we pick Did, up? We, we can edit that out. So uh, just pick up with 2010 Olympics. Okay, so the 2010 Olympics and the pursuit was actually um, a really tough one because he had dosed for a pretty hard race and the pace went off really slow. And um, he ended up with more insulin in his system than he needed. He had a blood sugar low, passed out on the course. Um, some coach on the sideline or a spectator was able to pass him a bottle of Gatorade. Um, and, he, and he skied and he finished the race. Should We should have pulled him off the course, but we didn't. Um, he was in very, very good shape, but that was, yeah, that was a bad yeah. one. Well, it, you know, it's an incredible story and, you know, a real tribute to perseverance of Chris and, and you, like I said, you know, uh, just talking the science side with, uh, both of you guys, but, um, th- like you said earlier, there is so little information on it. And I mean, shit, as you well know, this, the, the skiing, this whole uh, equation is complicated enough, you know, trying to figure this out without the added complications of, you know, blood sugar fluctuations. It's, uh, it's a, it's a, it's an inspiring story. So anyone out there who's an endurance athlete, you know, struggling with some of this, I highly recommend they get in touch with either Zach or uh, Bird because each of these guys has figured out a ton and shown that you can, you can do it certainly at a very, very high level. It's, it's not easy, but you can do it. And like you said, I, I follow uh, bird on Instagram and it looks like he's crushing the triathlons as well. So that's, it's sick to see him still grinding. Um, speaking of uh, us skiing, how would you rate the overall state of us skiing right now in the world cup? <laughs> what can you say? It's astonishing. I mean, so we've known we've known the women were good. It's awesome to see, um, you know, Jesse and Rosie at the front of almost every race, uh, leading the overall World Cup, leading toward a ski. It's it's just it's a, it's a fairy tale. But notwithstanding the fact that that neither of them are left in the tour, you know, we had Ben in third in the tour, and then Gus in fourth in the tour after the sprint. Um, we've we're seeing you know, Johnny thirteenth place in an individual start distance race. I mean, we're seeing results that are like a fairy tale and they're coming on the guy's side as well. There's depth there. So the, you know, U S is definitely, you know, it's not Norway, but it's on par with everyone else. It's competitive with, with every other nation in the world and, and is getting the results. Um, my, you know, I'm always concerned for the future. I think there's a ton of momentum. I think there's a great culture. I think some of the incentives that help bring things to where they are might have been removed from domestic skiing. And I and I don't necessarily see all the pieces of the equation that help to develop these skiers um, still in place. And I, I fear that the incentive to support racers for a long domestic calendar and keep high level support going is eroding because some of the teeth have been taken out of the ends of the season and too much emphasis has been placed on us nationals, uh, for qualification and opportunities. Um, I think, I think some decisions have been made and, you know, for the sake of fairness and trying to find the right bubble athletes to take to the right opportunities rather than look for the, the bigger incentives. I think, um, I think the women's team is in a state of flux, both, uh, obviously Rosie's quite old and still improving. Jesse's not young, still improving. Um, I wouldn't be at all surprised to see them continue to be super strong through the next Olympics, but the time's going to come when they're leaving. And 
you know, Julia looks fantastic. She's she's solid and, and improving. Uh, it's been great to see Laukley take a step up this year. I think Novi is really good. She's top 30 almost all the time. But you got to remember that, like, you know, Jesse was getting podiums at quite a young age. And it's not like there's an obvious heir apparent and there's a lot of pressure on this younger generation that's coming up to fill some very, very big shoes. And as we look further down the ranks, I think they're really exciting young athletes. I mean, Sammy Smith is on the tour right now after dominating the Anchorage Super Tour. Um, and we're just going to have to see, can, you know, can, can skiing keep her attention away from soccer? You know, like there's, there's, there's talent out there and there's culture out there. And yet we also have to understand that the, the wave that built with that has resulted in, you know, having two skiers at the top of the overall world cup standings and leading the tour to ski, um, that, that wave started to crest with Keegan like a long time mm. ago, a decade ago. And, you know, at the same time, it's not like Keegan was alone. Keegan was for a while. The U.S. women's team was canceled. It was done. There was no U.S. women's team like post-2002 or something. And then Keegan was the only female for the U.S. on the World Cup when I first started doing service trips over there in like 2008. The only one. Mm-hmm. And then you had, at that time, you had... Liz Steven and Morgan Aratola show up and start winning national titles as juniors. And my uncle John at the time said, when juniors start winning national titles, then there's a future in the sport. And he was dead mm-hmm. right. You know, those two starting to show up and put the seniors in their place was a good sign. And about, you know, Chris, Chris had done more or less the same thing. You know, he, he won his first national title as a 19 year old. And, and he said, yeah, that's good. That guy can get international results. Um, but there was no critical mass. I think that, you know, Keegan, Keegan had the support of, of yeah, some great athletes, of, of Liz and Morgan and others, okay? Um, that critical mass built over time. And uh, there were a lot of athletes who had a lot of success building the momentum in that program. And it started a long time ago. And... I'm just hopeful that it can continue. feels like this wave is likely to crest, and then we'll just have to see. At the same time, you look on the guy side, and you can see it coming. I mean, back-to-back World Junior Relay wins. Mm -hmm. This is distance skiing now, not sprinting, all right? And these are team events that are being won back-to-back years. There was no question those guys were going to be good. Mm -hmm. And now they're starting to show up. You know, we've got... We've got two sprint podiums and a fourth place from from that cohort now, and this season, and it, you know it, it's looking awesome. And I think I think the the bright spot rising right now is the guys program. Well, so um, it's always going to be more volatile on the guys side because it's such a tight field. Um, but yeah, I I think the status is great at the moment, and I'm just always concerned and looking for that next wave. And, and, and my gut feeling is that um, there's a lot of pressure on some pretty young ladies right now. And I'm just, I'm really bummed that the sport hasn't been able to keep, um, you know, some, some of the great talent that can be filling in like uh, Catherine Ogden or a Haley Swerble. Mm-hmm. 
Um, Why do you think that's the case? You know, there, there, there are some, there's some women. I don't know. I, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I observe from a bit of a distance. I'm not, uh, I'm not traveling with those guys. I'm not part of that world at this point in time. Um, managing, managing that atmosphere is, is, is tough. And clearly the program that they've taken is working, but they're, you know, the burn rate's pretty high. There are a lot of athletes that, that, you know, don't achieve everything that you feel they might have and, you know, aren't, aren't in a position to contribute what they could have to the momentum. And as, as strong as that momentum is, um, I'm just concerned with the pressure placed on the quite young crew that's coming up now. So that's a, that's a really interesting comment. Uh, you know, back when you were coaching Bird and the Hoff and Tad, you know, I think there was a sense of perhaps some un, uh, unfulfilled potential there. Do you? Th- and I'm wondering if do you think at the time those guys got the support that they deserved from the U.S. ski team? And you know, if not, like what has changed? Like why did those guys leave? In some cases, with maybe not the best experience, and how has that? you know, process changed, if at all, or do we just have different athletes? What's, what's your take on how that hall had went down? Uh, I mean, they got the support that was available, you know, at the time, um, Chris uh, on his way out, wasn't getting fourth place at world championships. Keegan was winning medals on the regular and Jesse was showing up and that dynamic was quite good. The, the ladies team was a, you know, contender for medals and world cup relays. And, um, Chris was the only guy, uh, getting any distance results at all, but the real interest there was in supporting the sprinters. Um, and so, you know, it was, it's, it was, it was easy in a team with limited resources to say, Oh, the guys, you're going to drive yourselves from the hotel. Cause the staff has to be out there for the women's race. You know, you don't, you don't have a, a dedicated, you know, chauffeur this morning. So, you know, here, Newell, here's the keys. You, you, you do the driving and, and, uh, yeah, we're not really going to retest between the women's race and the men's race. Cause we don't have the resources. So they're, you know, getting the skis were good enough for the women. So yeah, we'll put the same wax on the guys. Um, none of this was, was because the, the guys weren't good enough, or maybe I should say if the guys were the ones getting the podiums, then probably the, the women would have had a smaller staff there in the morning, right? Like the resources go where the results are. So it's, it's not, I, did they get what they deserved? Well, they got what was available. Mm-hmm. And I don't think in hindsight that you can fault anyone for that, but could they have, could they have benefited from more support? Sure. Is the team doing a better job now? A hundred percent. Absolutely. It's a more professional organization. I'm not, I'm not inside, but looking at it from where I sit, it's, um, I see better use of industry resources to support athletes. I see, um, yeah, I see, I see a more professional organization supporting uh, more athletes at a higher level than 10 years mm-hmm. ago. But, you know, that's an interesting comment, though, with all this talk about gender equity and parity, and I think rightfully so. Do you think if the situation was reversed now and the women were not getting the resources that the men are because the men were getting more results, do you think that would be 
being handled the same way, both in the court of public opinion, as well as on the boards and everywhere else? I don't really care. I mean, it's we'll find out, right? Because I think that I think in the next few years, we're likely to see um, the guys eclipse the girls and results, at least at least from time to time. Mm -hmm. um, I, th I think my gut says that we're going to see uh, really good continued support to the athletes that are able to get the results. And I think there's a lot of those right now. Um, you know, part of my part of my concern is with the long-term development trajectory and how long it takes to get good. Rosie took a long, long time to get good, and she did not get the support of a World Cup winner when she was developing as a member of the ski team. You know, like th th that was a tough way to make it to the top. Absolutely. Um, not many people are determined enough to pull that off. But, you know, if we go back and we look at uh, Becky Scott, for example, at one point back in time, I, I tallied up the number of top 30 results she had before she started scoring podiums. And it was a very, very small number mm -hmm. over a very, very large number of races that she had access to with full national team support before she, you know, was an Olympic medalist and, and winning overall World Cups. Um, it, it took a long, long time. So, you know, I look at Novi McCabe getting regular top 30s. She's on a much better trajectory than Becky Scott was mm -hmm. at her age. But, but what happens when a, when a nation gets greedy is, you know, does, is that good enough? Is that good enough to satisfy the demands and, the, and to, to keep the resources allocated on behalf of an athlete who – you know, could have the potential in five or six years to be winning overall World Cups. Right. And I think it's a very interesting. F I, I don't know the answer. I, I don't know the answer. I, and I think I think the um, I think it's it gets really easy to dismiss athletes and do it prematurely when they've had a couple of bad years. Um, and Rosie is a really good example of why that shouldn't be done but the the simple economics of the whole thing um are good reasons that you know you stop investing where the where the payback's not coming back to you i mean at a certain point in time if the results aren't there then right well it, i mean it's a very interesting philosophical question too because i think to some degree you're answering your own question because it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy if you say there aren't results here we're not going to invest in this team that makes it that much more different difficult for that team to therefore achieve results and you know you're in that that negative downward spiral that's very very difficult to get out of and yeah but let me let me be really clear that i don't I don't see that happening right now. I see, I see that team doing a great job of supporting a bunch of athletes at a very high level. And, and like, let's talk about skis, you know, uh, several years ago, uh, Chris Grover would comment on the classic gap on faster skier articles, you know, about how we just were not as good in classic. Mm -hmm. It was never not as good in classic. That was, that was bad service. We had the worst classic skis on the world cup for a long, long mm -hmm. time. That's not the case at this point. Those kids are getting the tools they need to produce results week in, week out in challenging conditions. And once the expectation rises, the athletes are better at making do with 
less than perfect skis. And we see, you know, we see some of the service work replaced with grit. How does Norway look when they don't have the best skis? All of a sudden, they, right. you know, not that dominant. It's a service sport. It's a technical sport. Mm-hmm. And and to not pay attention to the role of that is is huge. So we're talking about a different organization that is maturing right in front of us. I've got nothing negative to say about the performance of that staff or service team this year. They've been killing it. I mean, to the standard of any other team out there, and it's that has not been the case. Last year, we saw glimpses. This year, it's consistency, and it's it's fantastic. It's a really good thing. So I don't I don't see – I've got no bone to pick with the way things are operating right now, and I give the leadership there a ton of credit for continuing to evolve and improve that organization. I think the national team can't succeed without the support of the organization, and it looks like it's going really well. I really appreciate that domestic athletes are getting opportunities to race on the regular – you know, that that there's, you know, there, there's a lot of things that are really functioning very, very well. Um, I'm always aware of how things can go the other direction. And I, I have I have concerns about, you know, about what the coming years look like. And, you know, U.S. U.S. has had a great team in the past and it evaporated and we were in the wilderness for a long, long time. And I, I would really like to not see that happen. Mm-hmm. I think culturally, so much has changed. That group of guys in the 80s, late 70s, early 80s, that, you know, had four guys in the red group. This is like Galanis and... When he took a top 15 Donkley and those guys? Yeah. So, yeah, like like Dan Simino, Jim Galanis, Bill Coke, Tim Caldwell. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Stan. There's a, there's a bunch of them, but the the... But Galanis, Simino, Koki, and Tim were the were the red group guys. They were the guys that won the World Cup relay. Um, that, that was a good group. That was a, that was a, an amazing crew. And but they came out of a pretty small geographic area. Dan was from Maine. The rest were from Wyndham County right here. <laughs> and uh, you know, so so it was like one program almost. If you you know, it would be like APU fielding the entire right. World right. Cup team. In point of fact, now APU is 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 one of the several funnels that feed the world cup team, but pull athletes in from a whole bunch of really, really well-staffed, well-coached, well-funded junior programs. The funding mechanism might be crowdsourcing, but it's pretty freaking broad and good. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of resource backing skiing domestically right now. And there's a lot of enthusiasm behind it. And the feeder system is pretty good. And that I, you know, that has grown by necessity over time, but it's it's not the national team that's developing these athletes. The national team provides the resources at the World Cup for athletes that have developed over ten to twelve years to succeed. So you got to you got to go back pretty far in the personal history of each of those successful athletes to look at at what's happened, and it's you know it's it's a pretty broad footprint that 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 the current success has. And that's where I take the most confidence. And that's the biggest difference, I think, from what we saw in the 80s, where it was, you know, a very small number of people from a very small area, not not a nationwide series of programs that were feeding athletes into domestic pro programs that were feeding athletes onto a well-supported World Cup program. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a great point. All right, listen, I don't want to keep you here forever, but I, I got to ask you one more question. And this is kind of changing gears off the World Cup, but sort of ties into what we were just talking about here, because I think ultimately that's really at the core of what we're talking about here. So now we're talking about skiers not on the World Cup, but what would you? how would you rate the overall state of the union in skiing in the U.S. right now? Are the numbers trending up, trending down? flat you know are we getting those five six seven year old kids that want to get fired up that want to you know that push each other in training every day that eventually get to the high school team that get to the college team that get to the bsf or the sms team or apu because i 100 percent agree with you you know the the u.s ski team is not in the role of developing athletes at least per se you know that happens you know 10 15 years down the pipeline uh, a buddy of mine, a skier Nori, was talking about a lot of the kids there, you know, now want to play soccer. You know, that there's just even a ski crazy country like Norway, their coaches are worried because they see less kids going in the pipeline. You're much closer to this than me. What are you, what are you seeing in the U.S. just on a broad brush, both masters and probably even more importantly, younger kids getting into skiing? Well, so it's what's interesting is that as a from a business perspective, I see a lot of growth pressure in our business, which is specific high-end race gear. Even for non-racers, it's still specific high-end race gear. Um, that growth, I think, is a reflection of stress in the marketplace. So um, fewer and fewer local shops are able to service high-end gear partly because the level of sophistication has come up so much and it takes a higher and higher level of expertise but also because just the cost of carrying that gear in an uncertain environment is tough i'm talking about about climate change global warming the fact that the total number of places where there's skiing on the lower 48 right now is pretty low um it's it's a tough environment and when when a business like mine is seeing massive growth pressure what i have to assume is that i'm experiencing the overflow from a stress induced selection so let's say john that you are an enthusiastic performance recreational skier who's on decent gear and really likes skiing but you know you used to ski in your local area quite a lot and now you're kind of bummed out because natural snow is not reliable enough, but the local ski club is fundraising for snowmaking and you've got a membership for an hour away where there's good snow and grooming and you're contributing to the local efforts to have snowmaking and you're, you're making the decision to invest your time, your money in the continuation of Nordic skiing, not just your own continuation, but the community, you know, the resources, the infrastructure for every one of you, because now that you're invested, you're going to show up to me or Boulder Nordic or Pioneer or, you know, one of those places that sell on top end stuff and can support you at a higher level. You're invested now. You're showing up at my doorstep. So that's what I'm feeling. Oh, this is a new customer. This is someone who's who's really upped their game. But for every one of you, how many other people are saying, ah, there's no juice left in this. There's what, you know, it's not worth the squeeze. I'm going to, I'm going to ride my bike right, all winter. Right. We're losing, you know, the, the ski, skiing is shrinking. Mark my words. There is stress. I run a different business. It's the local ski shop. We sell touring skis, recreational skis and everything else. And that's, there's nowhere right now. Mm -hmm. 
Caldwell Sports twenty percent up. That's that's nothing. It's 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 you know fallen totally by the wayside. So as we look at things, we see an I what I believe we're seeing is an increased investment, which is reflected reflective of the fact that to be in the sport, you need to be invested. You have to drive. Mm-hmm. You need to you need to burn a ton of fossil fuels to both produce this snow, groom the snow, and get to the snow. And it's happening in a ever shrinking number of areas. The number of race options is getting consolidated down to a smaller number of venues and a smaller number of races. And the because of that, the depth in those fields looks really, really high. But it's not like there's a race in every town in Vermont every weekend, you know, like they, they, there used to be races all over the place. Um, right, right here, right from where I am, you know, you could race in Marlboro, you could race, yeah, they're all, all over the place. And we keep trying to build these things back up. But, you know, it's a, it's a 4060 proposition that you're going to be able to pull it off with natural. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, we see, we see an increased investment at the high end. But it's like, you know, you're, you're squeezing through a ever narrowing aperture. And, um, I think those of us that gauge the success of the sport from at, from the top, from the from the highest levels of performance and racing, and are selling into that market, um, are sitting in a position where we can look around and say, "Hey, this sport is super, super healthy." But at a certain point, like you're talking about ski jumping, mm-hmm. right? It takes a huge resource, an unrealistic resource, to have a jumping hill. And it's a sport that's, you know, like so exclusionary. It's not, it's not a sport for the masses. It's a sport for television. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a silly spectacle. And at a certain point, it's not economically feasible and it doesn't have a future unless people just spend the money to make it happen. And, um, you know, it's, it's a tough model skiing. We want it to be a really populist thing. But even even the immense popularity of long distance races, you know, the Vassalopet, the Birkebeiner, the American Birkebeiner, those things are going gangbusters. Why do you think that is? It's because once again, those people like you that are making the choice between like, well, should I just ditch skiing and bike, or should I should I invest? Well, screw it, I'm going to be a skier. I'm going to the Birkebeiner. I had a great customer with a, a great conversation with a longtime customer today who. Uh, lives in Colorado, was going to ski a race in Michigan, but they didn't have snow, so he's flying to Washington. <laughs> the guy's 78 years mm. old. He's flying to Washington to ski mm-hmm. race because he's made his choice. He's, he's a skier. Yeah. All right? So this is what I'm talking yeah. about. This is not the same thing as, oh, yeah, there's a whole race series right here, and I can go the next town over, and racing, racing happening organically at a local level all over the place. You see what yeah. I'm saying? Well, so let's let's finish on something a little bit more. I don't know if it's good or bad, but racing is healthy. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so let's finish uh, on something a little bit more upbeat, uh, because this has been incredibly helpful. I, I'm sure uh, everyone really appreciates this excellent insight. So, kind of in summary, as someone who's been you know in the game for a long time and seeing a lot, what's the biggest piece of advice that you can give to really skier at any level, but in particular, the master skier where, you know, you're trying to manage the job, family, just life in general, and you want to progress your skiing. And, you know, that means a lot of different things to different people. So whether it's, you know, moving up a wave in the Berkey or just 
being more comfortable on a sketchy downhill. You know, skiing is really, really unique in the fact that it is so much more fun the better you get at it. Like you can be a not very fit, not very technically competent bike rider and still go out and have a nice time. Nice day, you know, you go out, go on, you know, do a pub crawl. You can go out, you know, cruising with your buddies at 12 miles an hour or 15 miles an hour and have just as good of a time shit. You probably have a better time than, you know, if you're out there hammering at 25. Skiing, however, like when you're more technical, when you're smoother, when you're better, it's, you know, it's more fun. It's more efficient. You just enjoy yourself more. And that's hard because like you said, it's very demanding technically. You know, there's a certain baseline of knowledge that you need for skis, wax, for all that stuff. So, you know, as someone who makes a career out of managing that and providing counsel to people trying to optimize that, what would you say is the biggest and best piece of advice that you can give just on how people can go out and have more fun skiing. Approach it from the point of view that it's a very difficult sport, physically demanding, and that anything that you can do to make it easier is going to make it more approachable and more fun. So, that doesn't mean that you just aspire to less and therefore don't try. <laughs> what it means is that you, you have to you have to find ways to make proficiency more attainable and easier. Let me give you an example in, say, skate technique. I see a huge number of people out there trying to ride a flat ski. This is like the goal. I want to be on a flat ski with really good balance on that ski what they're out there doing because they're old they don't have great balance they're they're not you know their athleticism has faded they're basically doing static balance drills they probably don't have the foot ankle core stability to balance very well at all and they're predicating the whole approach to the technique on a challenge that they're not physically adept at making they're just it's, it's not going to work very well but what happens instead if that skier says well i'm stable when i'm on edge mm -hmm. and as long as i'm moving from one edge to the other edge i'm pushing and i'm going along and we just make this thing about connecting out of balance movements mm -hmm. with and, and and increasing our proficiency in motion mm -hmm. rather than in static positions um, you get rid of a ton of muscle tension. You get, you know, you can, you can still be forward. You can still be high. You can be all the good buzzwords, but what you can't be is stacked, balanced, and static. Mm -hmm. And when you pause for a second and you look at that freeze frame photo of Claybo who, or whoever it is on a perfectly flat ski, totally stacked, and then you put that pro that photo into motion and you ask yourself, was it ever static? Was it ever stationary? Were they ever holding that position or were they passing through that position mm -hmm. on their way to a more active position? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the way people approach the sport is in these freeze frame still images. And, and okay, we're using technique, but let's look at it in another way. Let's say that you're trying to learn to classic ski and you decide that waxing sounds like a pain in the ass. And so you're going to do it on skin skis. Chris Freeman can't kick a skin ski. You know why? The skin can't hold the impulse of his kick. Mm -hmm. It folds up. It goes away. It, it like flips. 
I took a pair to the World Cup at one point. We were like, I'm going to take a pair of skin skis. We're going to like get back on this. Back in the day when when Koki was skiing a relay leg on mohairs, you know, and and everyone was like trying to climb underneath his skis on the course to see what was working. Um, the, it was they were different different conditions, different tracks, different technique, different skins, different skis. The speed demands were not high. Skins, to the extent that they work, work almost well enough to race 1960s style skiing and conditions. Mm-hmm. They, they simply, you cannot produce modern race skiing on skins. It doesn't work. They can, they're terrible. Mm-hmm. It's not skiing. It's shuffling. It's, you know, so, um, so if, if this is the approach, you're going to try to get really good at classic skiing and all you have is skin skis because you think that's easier, then you need to acknowledge the limitation and say, you know, you're making the motion impossible on yourself. You cannot achieve speed race technique in, unless you're doing the sport. The sport includes wax. Mm-hmm. So you need you need good classic skis, and you need a simple and robust wax program that can give you kick in challenging conditions. There's, I mean, it's not nothing. It's it's difficult. It's a technical sport. Um. So yeah, how do you make it easier? Well, you got to acknowledge what it is you're trying to do, what the hard parts are, and what the easy parts are, and don't chase the pointless parts like the skin skis which are a fine training tool and recreational tool. Don't get me wrong, but they're not going to develop your technique and don't, you know, don't, don't chase impossibilities like perfect balance. You gotta, you gotta find, seek ways to make the sport easier, easier to perform at a higher level. I like it. And it also seems like a perfect place to stop because number one, we've been on here forever. And number two, uh, this is a perfect segue into next week. So as a reminder, everyone, send in your questions. We want to hear from you. So if there is something that uh, Zach covered today that you would like to hear more on or uh, raise the question that you thought of before, we'd love to hear your questions regarding uh, Ski Quiver. Uh, we didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about grinds, but we certainly did some. Love to hear your, uh, your questions on grinds. If you want to get ahead of the game, you can send in your wax questions. Some of them will, you know, if we get 500 questions on how many passes you should be making on, you know, uh, putting down, you know, extra green, uh, we'll get in front of that and we'll address that in the next dedicated episode specifically on waxing. And then again, uh, we're going to do the full Q&A uh, in a couple weeks after we've given everyone sufficient time. So start sending in your questions. What do you think, Zach? Should we... Uh, should we just limit it to ski, grind, and wax, or should we open it up? Do you want to field every crazy random ski question in the world? What's more fun? What's what's more useful? Well, you you get to decide what you get to decide what to ask. So just open it up, yeah. and then and if there's there something go. that seems entertaining, we could pursue it. And if it seems not like worth it, then you can pretend that it was never. There sent. you go. And then you'll just get hit. Yeah, there. that's that's true too. All right, I like it. So send in all your questions. You got two weeks. We'll be back. Well, whatever we say, weeks, but episodes. So next episode will be dedicated to waxing, and we really appreciate Mr. Caldwell's attention to detail on that. Um, let's see. You can send your questions to info at Nordic Insights dot news or slide into my dms on instagram at fast underscore big dog and 
after the appropriate submission period, we will reconvene and answer all those questions with Mr. Caldwell. Uh, Zach, this was awesome. Um, thanks again for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. It's only awesome because you're such a nerd. That was like two hours. These people are going to be asleep. Oh, I've listened to 45 <laughs> minutes of your, you'll do, what do you call them, nerd files? You'll do 45 minutes on Instagram talking about like <laughs> one new kick wax formulation you have. One. And and I listen. Um, but actually. And I'm only scratching the surface. That's true. Um, I do want to give uh, a couple more shout outs real quick. Um First and foremost, we had a very generous donor who sent me all kinds of fancy recording equipment. This good Samaritan is a, f- a fan of the show and felt we'd be well served to have better audio equipment. So hopefully that's reflective uh, in this podcast. We wanted to save it for an important guest like Zach. So uh, this gentleman is an absolute rock star, um, wanted to remain anonymous. So thank you, good Samaritan. Uh, second part about that, and Zach and I were kind of bullshitting about this before we went on the air here, is... Um, kind of in a very eerily accurate parallel to, to today's topic about knowing your equipment, all the best recording equipment in the world uh, doesn't do you any good. In fact, it's counterproductive if you don't know how to use it. And so I'm incredibly fortunate to have an amazing audio engineer. His name is Nathan Shuttleworth. Of course, he's also a skier. Um, so he uh, understands both the technical side as well as the content side, which is helpful. And he's been amazing. We're, you know, as Zach pointed out, what a nerd I am, we're testing this and, you know, with the shades up, the shades down, closets, great room, office, everything to get, you know, to optimize what we've got. And Nathan has had the patience of a saint. And, uh, you know, he's a pro, which is good because my producer Wolfgang and I are basically flying by the seat of our pants here. But we're very fortunate to have smart, generous and qualified people around us. And one more kind of shout out as I was kind of putting this all together. I don't think I've yet thanked my good buddy Gavin Kench on this. Um, Gavin's the principal of the site. And I was telling Zach, uh, Gavin's work ethic on this is amazing. He's at nationals right now, you know, and he's like, sleeping in his car and you know he's got burritos that his wife made for him that he warms up you know under his armpit as he walks to the venue to interview people and it's amazing and again everyone is doing this on a shoestring so um gavin and uh, morgan hartley sending questions and ideas and all kinds of things all the time so um this is going well thanks to the team around me and again um apparently i have a deeply disturbed cult following with the Alaska Winter Stars program. Uh, so on behalf of that whole squad who sent in some shout outs, um, I want to say thanks to everyone who's listening because none of this would happen without you. But for everyone who does listen, who likes the show, uh, this is, you know, I mean, Gavin is great. He lets me do whatever the hell I want. But there's a lot of people behind the scenes that are really helping give this traction, give this legs, making the whole thing work. So really appreciate all of you for everything you've done. And uh, we'll see you guys out there. What time is it? Who woke me up?